something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at it, all things science fact and science fiction. Well, as always, I am not on my own. I've got on the fader here, John Berger. How are you doing, sir? As I said, 12 points go to a... Amer- no, wait a minute. That's the wrong podcast. That's the Eurovision podcast. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it all kind of goes into one at the moment, isn't it? We're doing yes. a lot of recording. One big blur. It's like, what do you want to re- re-recording this day? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, uh, how's things with you? Uh, hot. The temperature's rising over here, and I love it. After so many cold spells, it's great to finally have 80 degree up. Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit, people. 80 degree heat over here. I was say, 80 degrees Celsius. Wow, that is hot. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we've we've been having a couple of good days of uh, of weather here, um, and people are out and about. But that's all going to change because it's a bank holiday coming up, and that normally means oh, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. That's the way it yeah. works. Well, but it's England anyway. You guys get more days of rain than sun anyway. Yeah, I don't know how it works though because <laughs> we get more days of rain than anyone else. But then the, you get one day of sunshine, and then there's a hose pipe ban. What? <laughs> No, wait, wait, yeah. what, what is a hosepipe ban? A hosepipe ban is when you are restricted on how much water you can actually use because there's a drought. How is that possible? I, I have no idea. It's, it's mainly down to the fact that when the, after the cold weather, the warm weather starts cracking pipes and things, you know, it costs money to, to fix them and because some of the piping is, is quite old. Some of the areas have still got some like Victorian pipe work under the ground. Wow. Okay. So when there's a, a leakage, there's it's uh, sometimes takes time for them to come and repair, and it's like days of it spewing out all over the road. You know, days. It does sometimes take a few days for them to come and fix. But uh, wow. and then they wonder why there's a water shortage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we, we got lots of rain and snow and so forth over the past few months. So I, th- I think we're good on that one. I think Ross was saying for the entire month of March, he didn't get out once with his telescope because it was too cloudy the entire month. Wow. Mm. 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 <laughs> See, that's why you guys have to move over here. <laughs> but he made up for it for the last couple of days because uh, Mick, he's... Uh, second in command I would say uh, well, I shouldn't say that actually because his wife is probably second in command uh, third in command then in that respect um, <laughs> keep keep Frankie happy uh, <laughs> Mick has been teaching him astrophotography proper astrophotography and he took, oh, that's cool. he, he took his first shots yesterday of Saturn and Jupiter I believe Nice. So, so he's getting a bit excited about that, and he wants to get his first shots of um, Saturn framed and put on the wall. Because this is my first shot. So, well, he can have his Saturn framed, and I've got my Saturn V. <laughs> I got my little Saturn V right here on my desk. Well, I don't want to say little. That thing is not little. No, your your Saturn V. If if you ever need uh, your uh, ceiling tiles uh, actually holding up, you could use it to actually <laughs> hold the tiles. <laughs> yeah, I probably could. <laughs> Right. Um, yes. 
shall we get on with the main part of the show, sir? Oh, sure. This is where you put in that Monty Python and the Holy Grail clip of all the soldiers going, Get on with it! Yes! Get on with it! Get on with it! See, uh, what, we, what we were planning on doing, you might have heard it on the last show, that uh, John had just come back from Boston where he was at a, a big event that he attends every year called PAX East. And uh, he did mention a, a little bit about it last month. And uh, we'll go into the main part of the show and uh, we'll talk a bit more about it. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Future round trips to Mars could take 500 days or longer. This year, NASA launched the first one-year mission to the International Space Station to help prepare for those future journeys. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, The journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. So, John. Yes. PAX East. What's it all about? PAX East is basically the biggest video game convention on the East Coast of the country. That's what it all comes down to. There are actually... Now, hold on. One, two, three, four, five. There are actually six PAXs that go on throughout the year. One is for developers, so that doesn't really count for this one. But they've got PAX West, which takes place in... September takes place over Labor Day weekend here in the States, which is the first weekend in September. That's out right. in Seattle. There's PAX East, which is my baby. That takes place generally March-April time frame in Boston. There's PAX South, which is January, I think, in uh, San Antonio. PAX Australia, or just PAX Aus. Uh, I want to say that's Melbourne. That's in October. And then the brand new one that they started is PAX Unplugged, which is board and card games. That's it. No electronics, hence Unplugged. And that takes place in Philadelphia in November. So it's all gaming related. I'm closest to Boston, so that's the one I go to. I I will eventually get to PAX South because it's in San Antonio. San Antonio is an awesome city. I love the place. 
So, I will get down there eventually, plus a friend of mine lives down there so I can stay with him. But yeah, that's all it is. It's one big video game, card game, board game. That's all. It's four days of that now instead of just three, which was awesome because hardly anybody went to Thursday. They didn't even sell out all the tickets for it. So I had a chance to talk to just about any developer or any group that I wanted to there. That was awesome. And then you've also got a whole number of conferences and uh, discussion panels and so forth. They get musicians and people coming in to get autographs. Have you ever seen the comic strip Foxtrot? Yeah. Okay, Bill Ammon, he's there every year. So he's, cool. sell- he's selling his comics, and you get to talk to him, and I think it's his wife, and you know, get autographs and signatures. But then they also have a bunch of like musicians and so forth, where their songs and so forth appeal to geeks, like Paul and Storm. They're there mm-hmm. every year. And then they'll have concerts, arcades, classic consoles, all that sort of thing. It's fantastic. I love it. It is a total gaming mecca. If you love video games and you can go to one of these things, you really should. I don't think it's as big as GamesCon, which I think is in, um... Is that Cologne, Germany? I uh, think it's there. Yeah, I think it's in Cologne. That one is huge. I don't know that any packs really can rival that one. We do We do have one here called Play Expo, which is in August, I believe, I've heard of that, yeah. in, in London. And there's another one called Unrezzed, or Derezzed, which is basically just board games and card games strangely it's virtually the same area where i was at space rocks it's it's in the same area and if i was to go to one of these events i can stay at the same hotel so that's pretty cool there you go there you go (laughs) pax east is nice because it all takes place in the boston convention and exhibition center that place is massive just the show floor is roughly five hundred thousand square feet but the building itself because it's it's also got uh you know the, the various conference rooms and other stages and so forth. The whole building is over 2 million square feet. It's huge. Whereas if you go to PAX West in Seattle, yeah, that's the main one, but you have to go to buildings all over the city. Mm. They grew too big for the whatever Seattle Convention Center you've got. The plus side to that, though, is it's in September, so, well, okay, despite the standard northwestern rains that you get, temperature-wise, it should be good. PAX East, eh, depends on what time of the year it hits. Because I think it was last year, it was cold. This year wasn't too bad. I remember it last year because you were a bit worried about getting back. Because uh... Oh, last year I just made it home. I was maybe a half an hour from home, and I could see the storm front to the south. I remember it because um, people were sending me photos in of their, you know, their local football fields and things, and it was like snowdrifts up to the the bottom of the the goalposts. You know, it was yeah. like, wow, that's that's high. If that was the big one that I think it was, we got thirty four inches. That's almost a meter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a lot of snow. Because you, you do your usual thing and, and and crank up the barbecue. I did. I shoveled the path out there, took cover. I did that this year too, and we had a wasn't a bad snowfall, but it was like six inches or so. We really didn't get anything massive this year, which is fine. That's fine. If there's enough that I need to shovel or pull out the snowblower, time to fire up the grill. Just in <laughs> defiance. No, this year wasn't too bad. Relatively good driving and, and all that. And it was fun. That's what counts. It was fun, and I'm so glad they made it four days. So this year was the first time you, you went there on route with, with a uh, recorder. Well, that's uh, your fault. So anyone who doesn't know, I was getting ready to leave. I was literally packing that morning, getting ready to leave, and all of a sudden he sends me a message on Twitter saying, uh, you're bringing a recorder with you. Um, well, I wasn't planning on it, but yeah, I guess I could haul it up there. 
Then you busted my chops for saying haul it up when it's just a little zoom. <laughs> Which, fair enough. Uh, didn't do anything for two days. Just, just I was like, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to talk to these guys about? But then I talked to the guy who did that exception game. Yeah. He just was really excited to talk, and I was like, oh, I should have you know, brought my recorder with me. And then when I talked to writer Wyndham, man, he and I were talking for like a half hour. And I again, I didn't have my recorder with me. I was like, I'm going to bring it tomorrow. And he's like, oh, no, that's fine. You know, go on. We, we can talk again. It's like, okay. When somebody actually makes, you know, the time and effort to actually take that little bit of time out of their day so that they can come and speak with you, it's, it's, it's really nice. Yeah. No, I mean, there were a couple of interviews where it's clear that, well, some of the guys were polished. They knew what to say and, and so forth. Uh, some of them were just thrilled. Like, oh, my God, this guy really has an interest in our stuff. Those were fun. Those were fun. Mm-hmm. You probably should have been there, too. I mean, it's... The one thing that I like about it is that... Well, no, the the, the indie section alone, that's constantly growing. Um, I've managed to get into another session of a Sony uh, VR session. That was awesome. The one autograph that I got that I really wanted... Anybody who's in, been gaming for a while knows the name Suda51. And he's, he's known for making these really stylized, like, high-contrast games... And one of those that he made that I love is called No More Heroes. That came out for the Wii. And I just loved that one because of how goofy and stylistic it was. He loves going to these conventions because he loves talking to fans. Yeah. So I was like, okay, he's going to be there. I'm bringing up my Wii copy of No More Heroes. Hung around for a little bit at the Nintendo booth until he finally came around. But I got my signature and got to talk with him for you know, just a little bit. He had to go through a translator. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I say what is surprising about these kind of events is the amount of voiceover actors that actually go to them as well. Oh my god, yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of voiceover actors go to that. A lot of cosplay. An amazing amount of cosplay over there, especially for League of Legends. Mm-hmm. That's a huge one over there. Who else was there? I'm trying to think. There really weren't a lot of the big ones. Bethesda was there, but it was um, it was just to sell stuff, which was kind of mm-hmm. weird. So, I mean, they, they were there. They weren't showing off any games. Divinity Original Sin 2, I think that's Square Enix. They were there, and that that's a cool game. Uh, Final Fantasy, that was also being shown off there. Mm-hmm. The board and card game section seems to grow every year, which, unfortunately, I can't do... Okay, if anybody out there listening does board and card game development, hear me out here, okay? I get so frustrated when I go to that section because there's nothing that I can do anything with. All the board and card games that come out there are competitive, or even if it's team competitive, I don't care, or they optimize their game for four players. I've got two young kids, both of whom have serious case of sibling rivalry. Competitive games is not a good idea with them, and you know they're, they're the two youngest, so you really don't want them on the same team, and that's not going to fly too well either. So, we really can't do anything with the competitive games in here. Exception of stuff like Life. <laughs> you know, where you spin the dial and you're kind of, everybody's just doing their own thing and whoever gets the most money at the end wins it's not really competitive you know or uno or yahtzee i mean that's (laughs) kind of what we're limited to well you go through there and most of the games either have these really deep combat systems i mean i don't necessarily think i'd mind it too much if i learned it but still those are for competitive games or they max out at four players we're a family of five so how do you do that? You know, it's and that's the majority of the board and card games there. Can we please have a cooperative game that can support more than four players? Please? 
that would make me really happy and give me a reason to be able to go through the board and card game section. Well, I mean, there's always Dungeons and Dragons. Because you know, mm-hmm. they're constantly selling the dice and the figurines and so forth. Yeah, well, that requires someone to be really good and creative to be a good dungeon master. Nary and anyone in this family who can do that. Uh, there was an episode of uh, The Big Bang Theory where they did a, a game of... Dungeons and Dragons, and they really staged it. I mean, he put sound effects in and everything. He was really selling the story as he went along. You find yourselves in an overgrown old forest, and before you is a a giant oak tree with a face on it that looks a lot like Nicolas Cage. (laughs) He says, travel with caution. These woods are home to the bones of many a fallen hero. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and there there are people who sell these I don't I guess they're miniatures, but they're still rather large set pieces. Very ornate, very detailed, you know, they've got clear plastic water effects and stuff like that. There's some really, really talented people out there who build sets. To, for you to be able to do Dungeons and Dragons stuff but still you mm-hmm. need to have a good DM who can react properly and who can build the story yeah that ain't me <laughs> not me Ross so, is into that... his uh, into his board games uh, well not board well, yeah yeah, they are board games it's stuff like your, you know your space marine type stuff and all sure. that kind of thing And you do the Warhammer yeah yeah Warhammer yeah. yep that's and he does the uh, the Star Wars Armada stuff yep. and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. competitive stuff. Stuff that my mm. family doesn't really go for. That, that's why it's always frustrating to go through the board and card game area, because it's like, I, there's so much cool stuff here, and there's not a single person in the house who'd want to play it if I bought it. So, please, cooperative for more than four people. Make it so. And, but, and the thing is, they probably are out there, but they're so dwarfed by the four-player or card battle system and competitive, it's like, you can't find them. Tell you a guy you need to speak to, uh, and he's always available around. Uh, there's a guy called Nathan Barber, and uh, he's the gaming specialist at Dead Universe Comics. And if there is games that are the kind of genre that you're looking for, he's the guy that would know if they're I around. I might need to do that. Yeah, what, what he doesn't know about gaming... Um, board gaming and card gaming and stuff isn't worth knowing to be honest <laughs> <laughs> nice but I mean otherwise PAX is fun you, know, you, you can always find classic consoles and classic console games for sale although you know they're probably overpriced because oh. hey you're at the convention so stuff like that and obviously t-shirts and, and components are given away and they also have you know you, you can buy brand new keyboards and so forth I, I bought a brand new keyboard LED display so it, it's constantly changing colors all over the place just mm-hmm. I needed a new keyboard so I was like eh that one's not too expensive why not plus PAX is one of those places where if I leave without buying at least one piece of hardware I feel bad <laughs> you know okay. just one of those things <laughs> it's like I didn't leave with anything what's wrong with me but it's a lot of fun the big one that I love going to is the indie section it's always growing and that's the only place, really, where you can talk to the developers, talk to the people who are actively working on the game, you know, give them feedback, because the people there really want feedback. The vast majority of those, ga- of those games have not been released yet. And as the internet will show, 
Gamers have no problem voicing their opinion, especially if it's a negative one. <laughs> yeah, when they're on the internet, you put, you put them in a real-life situation, and they won't say a thing. <laughs> well, you know, that's not necessarily true. They will say it, but it won't necessarily have as much anonymous vile you know, behind it. venom behind it, yeah. That's the word I want. So it, it, it's not nearly as bad. And actually, there was one case where uh, something that I suggested, they were like, Oh, that's an awesome idea! Because it's just, it was a very rudimentary platformer game called Hexel, H E X I L E. And it's just developed by two college students who were there. They had you know, an area. And they're just like, yeah, you know, play it. What do you think? So I played the demo. And it's not bad. It's very much alpha build, but it's kind of like a Tron looking thing where you're simply stepping on these hexagon tiles that are lit up, but everything else is like dark blue sky and, and ocean and stuff like that. And the, the hexagon platforms build as you move along and what you do and so forth. So like a puzzle platformer. All right, yeah. yeah. And I was like, no, that, that's good. It, it worked fine. Didn't have any real bugs to it or flaws. But I looked at one of their posters, and it had these little hex patterns, not just on the floor, but a couple floating up in the sky. And I said, you know, I noticed that you didn't have anything like that up in the sky, so what about gravity shifting? And as soon as I said that, their eyes lit up, and they're like, Oh, that's an awesome idea. And they started writing down all these notes. That's the kind of feedback they want. And it's only in the indie sections that you can do that. You know, you go over to Microsoft or, or PlayStation, or, or even if you actually go to the game developers, like when Ubisoft is in, you know, and showing off whatever new Assassin's Creed or whatever game, there aren't going to be any developers there. Mm-hmm. That's all Ubisoft's marketing division because they're a massive AAA company. And that's what's also great about the indie groups is that they're not afraid to take chances. Though the triple A's are starting to come around, they've started to realize, oh yeah, people do actually like the experimental games. So they're starting to release them slowly. In fairness, Microsoft has been pretty good with the indie scene ever since the Xbox 360. But you know the others, Ubisoft and EA, they're just now coming around to games that are kind of niche quality and so forth. But yeah. it, it's still. It's the small developers that are going to be the ones. Most of the developer teams that I spoke with, the entire company has less than 20 people. That is very small. Oh, yeah. And and here they are at PAX, and tens of thousands of people get an opportunity to, to play the games and so forth. That's just the best time to talk to them, because these are the people who are actually involved with the games. So I got... God, how many? Like uh, eight or nine interviews? Something like that? Yeah. And some of them, as you'll hear, were really, really eager to talk to me. Just because it's like, hey, you know, you've shown an interest in the game and you get it. So, yeah, let's talk. You know, you're not going to get that from the big boys. So the first one that I spoke to, well, not <laughs> the first one that I have a recording of, let's put it that way, would be uh, with Ink Stories and Enfusion Interactive called 1979 Revolution Black Friday, which is a narrative story that takes place during the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. First off, what's the name of your studio? Uh, Ink Stories. Ink Stories, okay. And I'm sorry, your name is? My name is Riley. Okay, and you're, you are a? I'm the project manager at Ink Stories. Okay. So this is 1979 Revolution Black Friday, which I must admit has been in my Steam wish list for a while now. So what is this about? So 1979 Revolution Black Friday is a narrative-driven adventure game. And the conceit is that you play as Reza, a photojournalist on the streets of Iran 
during the Iranian uprising in 1979. And it, um, the game focuses on how you interact with those around you and the choices you make, which eventually shape the fate of you, the player, Reza, and the people around you. And interspersed throughout the game are um, real archival photos, sound, video, from the, uh, the actual uprising. Uh, the characters are based on real people, and everything um, actually happened. Like, the, the story is, you know, a true oh, okay. story. Yeah. so it's not really that much fictionalized. It's, it? it's, I mean, it's fiction, yeah, but it's, it's not, not, not uh, you know, it's all based on, like, a real story and real events that happened. Okay, so yeah. why such a considerably dark subject? Well, the subject is, uh, it's very prescient now, um, especially, you know, in terms of just, like, if you look at the way history often repeats itself, it's, it's very, um, it's very topical now, more than yes. ever, um, just in terms of... I understand where you're going with the, that. <laughs> the, important, the, the importance of uh, just the freedom of the press and uh, standing up for one's ideals in the face of regime change and mm -hmm. strife and unrest. Um, okay, yeah. so how does it play? I mean, obviously you can't affect the revolution itself. It's just the characters and the revolution is the backdrop. Yes. So it's done by, I mean, are there multiple endings, or how does that work? Uh, the choices you make affect how you get to the ending. So it's, a, it's br uh, a branching narrative, but at the end of the day, because it is historically accurate, there's really only one one outcome. Right, no, I and understand it, it's that. How you, uh, how you interact with, with those around you get to that point. Okay. And you said uh, when we were talking earlier that the... Whoever's in charge of the studio is actually from Iran and, and went through this, or uh, uh, Navid Kansari is the uh, creator and uh, director of the game, and he was uh, born and raised in Iran and fled to uh, Canada. So he pulled a lot from his own experience and uh, knowledge of uh, Iran and the revolution. And uh, there's um, a lot of the actors are Iranian, the composer. Mm -hmm. So very, very strong ties to, to Iran and, uh, you know, the Persian people. Okay, so uh, what platforms is this available on? So this is currently available on Steam, iOS, and Android, and oh, wow. is coming very soon to PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Okay, cool. Like I said, it's been on my Steam list for a while, but the backlog, yeah. it haunts me. It does, as, as, uh, as does it haunt us all. That was quite an interesting concept, really, for me. It is. I, I like the idea that it's a game based around real-time events. Mm -hmm. If you didn't know a lot about that situation in history, that you can actually go back and research into it and find out the ins and outs of actually what happened. And mm -hmm. whether that would actually help you with the game, I don't know. Considering how much detail and how such detail was able to be added to this game. This probably might even qualify as educational to a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. So, the guy you were talking to, uh, he was the project manager there, wasn't he? Yeah, hmm Never got a last name, that was my fault. It does really seem an interesting thing to be able to do, and I, I was just thinking to myself, well, you imagine all these different aspects of 
history that you could build in a similar kind of way within the gaming industry and mm-hmm. it, i think it'd be a fantastic thing to do and great for kids because you know to kids books can be so boring if, if you're just reading textbooks about history and geography and all this kind of stuff it's dead but if you can do it in, in an interactive way it mm-hmm. just brings it alive to you well there's a joke out there that basically anything that I ever learned about, like, say, the Renaissance, I learned from Assassin's Creed. <laughs> you know, and, and it's because it's amazing how much, like, when you actually read some of the dev blogs and so forth for games like Assassin's Creed and so forth, they put a huge amount of research into that particular game to make sure it's as accurate as possible. And they will even do their research and decide whether or not they want to do a game in a particular location based on what they can find. Stuff like that, it's amazing. And their latest one, Assassin's Creed Origins, which takes place back in ancient Egypt, it was received so well, now that they finally stopped flooding the market every year, that they actually introduced a separate mode later on where you can just do dozens of hours of interactive tutorials about ancient Egypt. Egyptology. Yep. So and now with this one, I mean, since the guy actually is from Iran and he was there for the revolution, you know, and the game includes actual footage from that, I'm sure that the tone is not one that younger kids would play. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of gruesome, you know, people get shot and killed and all that. But, yeah. you know, just for someone who has who really doesn't know anything about what happened there, that's a great way to do it. Oh yeah, it's quite a strained time in history within that um, part of the world to find out a bit more about it firsthand really when you think about right. it because I mean, he, he was there the guy created was actually there at the time yeah fantastic yep. so yeah that's been on my wish list on steam for a while so eventually i'll get there but right now the the steam backlog is pretty massive damn bundles <laughs> <laughs> So where did you go next, John? This is where my interview skills got a little bit weak because it was a game in a genre that I don't play. Right. So, I mean, this is RNG Studios and it's called Bound By. And it's a not real-time strategy, but... RPG. It's, it is an RPG, but it's turn-based strategy. Right. Uh, I mean, a lot of them are. If you go to a Japanese RPG, they're all turn-based. You know, and even if you go back to the old Ultima series, which I played a lot of when I was younger... Your characters do their turns, and then the other characters do their turns, and it goes back and forth. It's not the strongest genre that I play. My stuff is mostly action-adventure. Mm-hmm. I will admit that my interview is a little bit weak on that one. But still, I mean, it was it was cool to talk to them. And Bound By actually looks gorgeous. To actually see the gameplay, that's one thing I will at least credit myself with. I do love games that have good art design and good story. So even if I don't really like the gameplay... If the art design and the story can overshadow the gameplay, I'll still probably enjoy it. Final Fantasy VII used to drive me absolutely nuts. Mainly because you had to travel miles across the map to try and find a saving point. Yeah. But <laughs> but the artwork behind those games are absolutely wonderful. Oh, it's amazing to look at. And the only problem with having a game with such good artwork and backdrops and and 
character development and things like that if it's so good sometimes you get a bit carried away with it and it's like you don't realize that you're not doing very good at the game because you're too busy watching what's going on around you (laughs) yeah uh yeah well i will admit that i will admit that well i mean even assassin's creed suffers from that a little bit Mm -hmm. especially uh black flag because you're just floating around in your massive boat ready to destroy anything that comes at you you know, and you're just not paying attention. It's like, oh, wait, there's, there's a guy out in the distance. Whoops. It happens. Let's have a listen to the, the guy you spoke to. He was called Kevin, wasn't he, Kevin? Mm-hmm. I didn't get a last name. I'm a bad person. And, uh, yeah, this is what he had to say. All right, so I'm here with RNG Studios. That's correct. Okay. And this game is called... So this is Bound By. This is our new game for 2018. Right now we are in pre-alpha development, but we are slated for a winter 2018 release. Okay. The game is a strategy tactics uh, turn-based game okay. in a fantasy setting. I am not a big fan of RTS, but you're saying it's more turn-based than anything else? Right, right. What what would you compare it with when it comes to the gameplay itself? So if we have to compare it to games that have been out on the market, it would be games along the lines of XCOM, um, Fire Emblem, as mm. well as like Final Fantasy Tactics, where there's more okay. strategy uh, rather than like 3 on 3 combat or things like that other RPGs might have. Okay, but, it's, but then you have RPG elements. In. Yeah, again, things are still in development, but uh, we are planning to have some RPG elements to the game. Uh, the, the concept art is absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, we've had a, um, even for a small team, we really do like to focus on the artwork to promote the game. And since we are pre-alpha, we want that to shine right now to get people's interest. We have the Camille of the Booth check out the stuff in uh, the game and development right now. Right. Uh, so, I mean, are you taking uh, alpha testers yet? Or? Right now, no. And we're still deciding if we want to do alpha or beta testing. What we are looking into heavily is Steam early access. Right, right. Okay, so for people like me who go more for RPG than turn-based or anything like that. Right. Does this have, I mean, are there functions to this that could still make it appealing for people like me? I, I, I remember Pillars of Eternity when that first came out. Mm-hmm. A lot of micromanagement for the team group members and people were like, right. hey, this this is really more micromanagement than we want. I think this is going to be a lot more approachable for people, especially okay. if you're not familiar with the uh, um, strategy type gaming. Um it's trying to work quite cheap, but it's simple uh, interface with it. I mean, we do have examples here. This is actually current in-game uh, UI interface oh, for the okay. game. Yeah. So this isn't concept art. This is an actual screenshot of the build that exists right now. Oh, wow. So it's very simplified, and it's easy for people to pick up. And we want to have a good character and story-driven uh, game. So that way people are compelled by the overall world and are more uh, willing to give us a tryout if this isn't their type of game. Right, so I think a lot where a lot of those kinds of games fail is, hey, we got all this great tactics exactly, and strategy, exactly. our story is meh. As well as the fact it just might be a little bit too involved for most people, mm-hmm. but this one we want to make sure that people can really come in, try a new style of gaming and not feel overwhelmed. Right, yep. that's... That's I, I just I love the art style. Though. Thank you so That's much. Fantastic. I mean that has been our biggest compliment at this pack this year has been the art style and even with our previous mobile games we wanted to make sure that we had something that was unique, something eye catching. Right. Well, so so other people who might know you, uh, what other games have you put out? That- so this is our third year pack. This is our first time trying a Steam game, a more robust game. Our previous two games for RNG Studios first year was Yagata Pinata. It was a mobile title for Android and iOS. That was followed up by a second mobile title for Android and iOS called Postal Pawns. Most people, if they are going to know our studio, will know us for Yagata Pinata. That has been our biggest game That's so far. Yep. Okay. 
I will admit I didn't play those games. That's right. Yeah. kind of turn-based as well? Or? Right, that's correct. So uh, Yagata Pinata was a retro-feel-style game, a combination of like Snake meets Pac-Man. Mm -hmm. The basic story being you're a hero Pinata trying to save your Pinata friends at a kid's birthday party. <laughs> the kids stood for our enemies, and we had different characters like uh, characters that would hunt you down or throw water balloons for ranged attacks. Nice. Your kids were blindfolded that you could hear you, but they wouldn't see you, so you can kind of sneak around them. So we had a lot of variety, and as the levels went on, you'd have more kids and more intensity to the game. Our second game, Postal Paws, uh, you had two different teams, cats versus dogs, and they little anthropomorphized cats and dogs, and there were two rival competing mail delivery services. Oh, wow. So you had to race <laughs> the levels, picking up packages and dropping them off. And that was also a mobile game for Android and iOS, and both those games still are currently out and free to play. So uh, you said you're looking for sometime later this year, hopefully. And we yeah. know that those deadlines can always right, get pushed right. back. Right, right. But we are looking for winter 2018, tentatively right now, December of this year. Okay. We started production early this year, and so far we've been on track. We almost had our demo ready for PAX this year, but we didn't want to rush it. We want to make sure it was polished. So okay. when we do other events later in this year, particularly Otakon, we're hoping to have the demo there. Oh, Otakon. It's uh, Baltimore? Uh, at least in D.C. now. I think oh, they so moved. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And your name is? I'm Kevin, by the way. Yep. yep. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah. And good luck with the game. Thanks a lot. So, yeah, not, not my strongest interview, but, yeah, what can you do? The, the more interviews you do, the more you learn about how to approach people and deal with them if it's something. The amount of interviews that I've actually done where I've known absolutely nothing about the person that right. I'm talking to, um, especially at the Comic-Con sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I go around and look at their table and see the photographs that they've got of things they've been in. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. okay, right, remember those, and then ask them about that <laughs> when you're in the interview. Yeah. Well, plus, well, like you were mentioning before the interview, I was blown away by the graphics on this thing. The, mm -hmm. the art direction is gorgeous, bright, colorful. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm already interested in this game. It's like, oh, turn-based strategy. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, okay, whatever. Let's talk anyway. <laughs> and then you can talk about the artwork and stuff like that and then see where yeah. it takes you. And it, it, it does. Sometimes it opens a whole new door of, of, um, of questioning sometimes. Well, you know, I found that to be actually really common among a lot of the devs that I spoke to because I would just say something like, yeah, I saw like that one background looked gorgeous. And a lot of them are like, oh, thank you. Most people don't notice stuff like that. Not all of them, but a lot of the games that I play on Steam, I leave a review for. And one of them was a point-and-click kind of thing. And it, it, although, well, I guess it was more of a platformer, but it, it wasn't a really good game. And I said that in the review, and I explained why. But I did say the backgrounds look gorgeous, because it, it was the older, like, 16-bit style. But still, it, they were hand-painted backgrounds, and you could see marks of rust on metal and, and the wear of time and so forth. And I mentioned how much I enjoyed that, and the developers responded to my Steam review, saying specifically, you know, thank you, we really appreciate that you noticed the art in the game. That's really nice when you get that kind of feedback, though. Yeah, you know, I, I love games' art direction. I love when games try to do something different. Like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Journey on the PlayStation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I love those kinds of games, but I have no problems coming out and saying, yeah, I love the art direction, love the design, blah, 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 blah. And it seems that a lot of people don't really focus on that, which to me is kind of interesting because that's a lot of what the game's about. Yeah, if it was just solely about gameplay, you'd, you'd make it as basic as possible, wouldn't you? Sure. On, on the graphics. but Well, and there were plenty of those at PAX, too. Not as a bad <laughs> thing. It, no, like those really hardcore, you-will-die-many-times platformers. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and the retro stuff has really come back. In fact, oh, oh I, mentioned, I forgot to mention this one. Remember the guys who did Duke Nukem? I mean, the original, before it got sold uh, off to Gearbox. 3D Realms? Mm-hmm. They're still around, and they're wow. still making those kinds of games. In fact, they were there showing off a new game that's coming out that's basically a gender flip on Duke Nukem called Iron Maiden. Not Iron Maiden, but Iron Maiden. <laughs> it's basically Duke Nukem with you know slightly more advanced graphics, although it still has that old... 8 or 16 bit feel to it. First person, you're blowing stuff up. They they kept a lot of the 2D yet 3D look to it. Now it's just a wise mouth woman going around blowing things up and it looks awesome. I can't wait for that one to show up. <laughs> but I was, yeah, surprised to see them. I was like, oh wow, I didn't realize that you guys were still doing stuff. And they're like, yeah, 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 we're still doing a lot of things. So it's like, all right, cool. That's nice to see. Iron Maiden, you're going to have to, you're going to want to check that one out if you like the old Duke Nukem games. Cool. This is TGP Nominal. But it's not all games there, of course. One of the original gaming charities that was out there was called Child's Play. And, I mean, that's been around for a long time. Well, they had their own booth there as well. And what was great about Child's Play was that at the time, there was a lot of negative stuff going on about gaming. And then all of a sudden, hey, here's this charity that gamers are going to help us do a lot of good things with video games. And we'll just do the interview. Okay, so I'm at the Child's Play booth. Um, I've bought lots of Humble Bundles, so I'm very familiar with Child's Play. I've uh, made several individual donations when other streamers and, and developers have called for it. But what exactly is Child's Play, for those who don't know? Uh, Child's Play is a nonprofit. We work with the gamer community to raise funds to support kids in children's hospitals and domestic violence shelters. We've been around for 15 years. We partner with over 140 children's hospitals worldwide and a little over 100 domestic violence shelters in the United States. We bring consoles, games, toys into those facilities to try and help normalize life for kids. And then we also aim to work really closely with the staff to teach them how games can be a therapeutic part of the healing process. And then also really work to change the landscape of like child life. Last year we were uh, blessed enough to be able to sponsor three different child life tech positions, one at Children's Colorado, one at Methodist Children's in San Antonio, and then one at Yale Children's. And these positions are there to become the the VR specialist, the gaming and equipment specialist, the person who maintains and, and gets those equipment bedside, um, where sometimes those things and those donations that, that we'll provide may just sit and collect dust because no one knows how to implement them and use them. Right. Um, and so we're really working to help, help sort of change that landscape and bring bring therapeutic gaming into a really big part of uh, the child life process. Right, because, I mean, I even remember back in back in the 80s, which shows how old I am, you know, when even Reagan acknowledged, yes, there is a correlation between video games and kids having better responses and quicker reflexes and all of that. And I remember you guys came around at a time when video games were still kind of being demonized. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've started in 2003. 2003, there was a really big wave of bad press that said, you know, video games make people antisocial. They're right. murder simulators. They're, yeah. and, and when Gabe and Tycho of Penny Arcade did their, their toy drive in November of 2003 in a, in a less than six-week period, the Penny Arcade fans, uh, it was something like $35,000 worth of toys yep. donated to Seattle Children's. And from there, we realized... This is this is a thing. The gaming community is here. They're ready to support this cause, and right. we've been going strong for 15 years since. So, but I mean, you are not actually 
a PAX offshoot? Are you mean you're separate or? Uh, yeah, no, we're we're a standalone organization. We're a 501c3 charity. Um, we we're the official charity of PAX, but um, yeah, we are we're individual from PAX or Penny Arcade, but tied very closely. You know, the sure, same. Sure. All the founders, their founders, are our founders, so right. we we work very closely with them. Okay, so that's cool. So I always get the Cookie Brigade. Yeah, the Cookie Brigade is our uh, amazing support at PAX. So, okay, so if someone wanted to support this, you know, maybe they have something going on in their community. What can they do to get in touch with you, or what, what do they need to do? The So the main way that Child's Play raises its funds is by people doing things like game telethons on Twitch or platforms like that. Mm-hmm. So we have a Tilt-A-Fly uh, Tilt platform that, that you can work through there. They can reach out to info at childsplaycharity.org, and we can get connected and help you tie in to sort of how we put events together and do those things. Yeah. And, of course, you've obviously got lots of merchandise We do. For if you're here at well. PAX... Maybe for today, you might not have any Sunday the way things are going. <laughs> That's but, good. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, we uh, we have merchandise. We also have merchandise available online, so you can find it at childsplaycharity.org slash store. That'll take you to our store and get you you know, able to get our merchandise. If you got here at PAX and didn't find any, or if you couldn't make it to PAX, right. you can find the stuff there. And all the proceeds of everything that we do goes right back into funding our programs. Excellent. Well... And your name is? Uh, I'm Travis Erickson. I'm the executive director of the charity. There you go. Okay. Thank you very much yeah, for talking thank you. to me. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to get rid of all that stuff. Yeah, that's the goal. Let me give right. you one cool. of my cards. All right. Thank you very much for talking to me. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely awesome that there is organizations like that. And as I mentioned there, it's a worldwide thing. It's not just for America. It's, it's, it's all oh. over the world. It was amazing that you actually managed to talk to their executive director. Executive director, yeah. So mm. it's <laughs> top dog there when we were talking about things. Although, granted, that's nothing compared to the Labradex Studio one that we'll have later. But yeah, and it, it's just nice to have the charity there. And like, it's not just for kids, even though it's called Child's Play. How he said that he also helps, you know, uh, victims of domestic abuse mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So yeah, I mean that's. Everybody who thinks video games and video gamers are evil and clueless, yeah, uh, no, you're the one who's clueless. Sorry to tell you that. <laughs> it, it's very common to see that, oh, well, this Twitch streamer is going to be doing a whole bunch of gaming, and any of the any of the donations made at that time go to Child's Play. Or anytime you buy a bundle of games on Humble Bundle, a portion of that goes to Child's Play. You know, so there's a lot of good that gamers do courtesy of Child's Play, and it's awesome that they're around. That is, it is, it's nice to see that kind of thing. There's actually a friend of the show, a guy called Phil Olson, who uh, he has actually contributed to the show. He he did a piece about a, a kind of like a gaming museum that's up in mm-hmm. up in the Manchester region. That um, basically it's just full of old uh, old uh, arcade cabinets. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't. Have, they actually didn't have that at PAX this year. I was surprised by that. They normally have one room that's nothing but the big arcade consoles. And they didn't have that this year. I mean, granted, they still had the classic console room because you saw the photos that I put up of that Vectrix. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that made that me actually awesome. look on eBay and see if there was any available. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Phil Olson is involved, and I can't remember what the charity is now, but it's basically Gamers for Charity. Mm-hmm. And he basically does something like 24-hour, 48-hour gaming marathons. Yep. Uh, raising money for charity 
and uh, usually does it dressed up as Mario or something like that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so people that turn around and say, you know, gamers don't do anything to society for society. Yes, they do. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, the one game that I've been playing the most for the past year or so is Warframe, and that's where I go to Tenocon up in up in Canada. Yeah, they regularly will have. 24 48 hour Twitch streams because it's last I heard they have like 27 million players who are who have accounts on Warframe and they'll have a lot of Twitch streams and they regularly donate like 10,000 Canadian dollars 50,000 Canadian dollars to local children's charities up in London Ontario mm-hmm. you know and all of those come from donations from gamers who watch the Twitch streams anyone who says that it's it's um, antisocial which it most definitely isn't because it, we used to have this thing when I was a kid we used to have it at different people's birthday parties we we had a little trophy made up and we used to have an Atari Olympics <laughs> It was good fun, and somebody won a trophy yep. at the end of it, so... Uh... <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned about the, the antisocial part of games, because you just gave me a segue, that I also... There are a couple of games in here that are meant to be cooperative. You're supposed to help each other. And one of them is from Moonrace Studios, and it's called Debris. It's interesting. I don't know that I'd play it, but... It's an underwater game that's meant to be played in six to eight hour stretches, which is that right there is interesting. Yeah. But it's meant to be cooperative that friends are supposed to be able to pop in and help you out on this underwater thing. And again, the, the fact that somebody came up with this and they've decided, you know what, we're going to go for this when no triple A would have touched this. That alone makes me want to be able to have an interview with them and give them the publicity that they need. Because just because I might not be interested in this one, a lot of people might be. So I can just go to that one. Okay, so we are at uh, Moonray Studios. Yes, I'm currently demoing a game called Debris. Okay, so what is Debris about? Debris is an underwater narrative game. Think like Firewalks with a little bit of Subnautica. You play as Ryan, a diver that gets trapped underneath the Arctic ice and you have to find your way out. Interesting, okay. But it's actually more than just that. They're actually multiple. It's actually a multiplayer game. Yes, we do have a co-op aspect. Okay. So during the beginning of the game, Ryan finds his exploration and finds one of the robotic squids that they have with them. From that aspect, you can play two players. One person with Ryan, who is more like the defender. He has a gun. He has to shoot fish, and he has to protect the squid. The squid will then find energy. Energy that has a timer. It'll keep him alive for longer for the whole right. six to eight hour experience. So it's six to eight hours. So you, you actually can play this game for six to eight hours. So I see that the timer there only says like 17 minutes. Yes, you will find more and more debris as the game goes on. And if you do want to try for the whole six and eight hours experience oh, in one I see sitting, what you say. You okay. Can. So that's how much you've got left. Currently. Uh, what What do you say to people who might have uh, claustrophobia? Because <laughs> some of those areas are really tight. They are extremely tight. For those of you who do have claustrophobia close your eyes maybe play as a squid it might be a better experience but then on this one it's wide open and it looks gorgeous we do have different moments where sometimes you're in narrow tunnels sometimes you're in big open areas it's mostly to like show off the art style that we have for the game oh yeah the art style is great you said it's exploration there's got to be more than there's got to be some napkin though don't there there is a couple different paths that you can take it's super uh, linear on that case we also have different, like, with those different paths, have different fish on them. Mm-hmm. You might run into, uh, currently, some of the uh, more aggressive fish that will come after you. 
there might be other fish that are just stationary. If you get close, they'll jump at you type mm. situation. So it also depends like where you are exploring. Okay, so you so you're you're staying away from the potential horror aspect of it. Yes, okay. like, it is mostly like I said a narrative game on that and Ryan's experience. Ryan will actually through the six to eight hours start going through psychosis. He'll oh, start wow. seeing things, hearing things, start getting paranoid that the fish are after him. Right. And we also affect the player on that case. Like, we have the controller do different things. We'll have some of the HUD disappear on you. And it'll be, like, little subtle things as well. Oh, wow. So you are going to go a little bit into the psychological horror bit there. We, uh, just a little bit, though. Okay. Not too much for the, the scares, but more for the effects of being alone underwater for right. such a long time. Okay, but you said it's also that people can help you. How does that work in a six- to eight-hour game? I mean, it's can't really do drop in drop out on that can you not so much like we really want this to play like with one person and like one of your friends mm -hmm. for the entire experience like you might have another friend that comes in like part way through right uh and the squid specifically is the emotional support for the diver okay. and that's the co-op aspect on there also the squid doesn't go through that psychosis so you might have one area where okay. ryan sees a lot of fish and he's very worried he can't get through but the squid won't see a single fish interesting i guess you can't do something like this couch co-op though can you no unfortunately it is only online co-op okay that's, that's fine uh, what platforms is this going to be available for currently it is available oh, it on is? steam okay. right now uh yeah debris is it going to be coming out to any of the consoles uh we will see after packs <laughs> we are here Fair for enough. reasons no i mean it does look good six to eight hours underwater with psychosis Ooh. <laughs> that's gonna be a tough sell to people like me though now what is this like this one here like a lava pit of some kind? Or? So the, the red objects there, that is the debris. That is the energy that the squid can actually pick up and translate. As you might be able to see with the timer there, mm -hmm. uh, the squid's energy went, went up to four, uh, 44, and then she walked away. Okay, so she just picked it up. Uh, right. I thought there was a second one, and there wasn't. Uh, so she's going to another pit now to see if she can get more, and it's currently with a bunch of fish. So she's not going to go in. And he just got destroyed by a lot of fish as well. Okay. So Sonia specifically is trying to get this pieces of debris that's glowing red to give you guys more energy to survive for longer. So what is the debris, or is that part of the mystery of the story? That is part of the mystery of the okay. story. Like Supposedly a meteor came down, and they found these glowing rocks that is debris. And then I won't spoil anything else. Okay. <laughs> fair <laughs> that's enough. That's within the first five minutes. I'll give that away. Oh, wow. Okay, fair. All right, good. All right, cool. Well, thank you for talking to me. Good oh, luck with the you. game. Of course. So I um, actually had a look at the trailer for this. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, hope you don't have claustrophobia. It is uh, it is a bit strange in places. Um, it is, and and it, it starts off that you've got a team there all swimming round together, and then all of a sudden something happens, and everyone feels like they're on their own for a bit. Mm -hmm. You do get this sense of oh my god, I'm on my own here. What's going on? Well, and the fact that they said that later on in the game you will start to hallucinate. As, as your mind starts to play tricks on you because you're alone and you're lost. Oh my god, where am I? That definitely adds an interesting aspect to it. So people who like survival horror games might like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just I, th I thought it was interesting that they were doing that and, and the fact that they were willing to actually take the time to do that. This could be the one of the biggest flops in indie gaming. We never, never know. Uh, it could also be one of the biggest surprise hits. You know, hello, Euro Truck Simulator 2. I never thought I would enjoy that game as much as I did. So, <laughs> I used to have a game on the on the uh, the old ZX Spectrum called Lawnmower Simulator. Are you serious? Yeah, Lawnmower Simulator. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? If the guys from Coffee Stain Studios can have a major hit with Goat Simulator, 
which is intentionally broken. <laughs> Anything's possible, I guess. Yeah, because there was all these different ATV simulators and all this kind of stuff out there, and they thought, can we do something that's a bit comical based around those? I know, why don't we do a lawnmower? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's the same with Goat Simulator. They were messing around with it, just trying to have fun with it, and they released it, and people started playing around with it, and they're like, oh my god, this is awesome, you have to release the whole thing. And the game is broken, they admit the game is broken, the physics are completely out of whack, but it's <laughs> so much fun to play because it's just so stupidly broken. <laughs> so, you never know what can appeal to some people. Okay, what, what do you got next? The one interview that really got me to thinking I need to bring my recorder in was a guy by the name of Will Traxler who made a game called Exception. There's nothing complicated to it. It's I don't want to call it a speedrunner. There is a timing issue to it. You have to get through as fast as you can. But this game is really Tron-like in the sense that it's incredibly bright colorful Mm -hmm. explosion and particle effects all over the place the world twists 90 degrees and and all of that it's an amazing looking game and he was thrilled to want to talk to someone about this so let's just start with will traxler and exception i am will traxler i'm the developer of exception okay so it's gorgeous to look at uh, what would you call this? Hardcore indie action platformer? I mean, what would you call this? Um, I, I've tried to mix and match a couple of words that would perfectly describe it. I think precision combat platformer is what I settled on. Oh, I like so, that yeah. one. That's, that's the most official sounding term I could come up with. <laughs> but, I mean, it's gorgeous to look at. Bright colors, lots of action. Uh, what made you come up with this idea? I mean, what, what, how'd you come up with this? Well, you know, my, my number one goal was to make something that was hard to ignore, something right. that stood out from the pack. So I use a lot of very bright colors, uh, lots of particle effects that are very bright. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hit or miss. Some people like it, some people don't, but nobody really ignores it. So I, I think it's mission accomplished on that. Right. Oh, it's definitely caught my eye. Even the, the, like the city backgrounds, they're just there, but... They look gorgeous. Well, thank you. Yeah, all the all the art, all the 3D models in the game are licensed from third parties. I, okay. I, I don't have very many art skills. I definitely don't have the patience or time to do modeling That's by okay. hand. So uh, basically, I acquired these assets and modified them to try and suit the artistic style of the game. So, so sometimes it works better than others, but for the most part, it's it's, uh, it's adequate, I guess. Is what what well, I like describe. I said, to me, it looks gorgeous. Well, thank you. Uh, but I also I also have an appreciation for art design in that sort of way. Uh, it just it fits. It looks great. I'd love to see this in stereoscopic 3D. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, yeah. So how long did it take you to make this? Well, um, I've, got, I've been kind of switching on and off between part-time, full-time. Uh, okay. My actual profession is banking, not video game development. So <laughs> Wow, okay. Those are, uh... Yeah, th- this is a very big departure from my normal day-to-day life. I think about three and a half years in, in time has been put into the game. Uh, as a solo developer, it does take a little bit longer to get stuff done. So Plus, I don't really know what I'm doing. So, so it, is this your first game? This is my first real game. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, it's just taking so long to get wrapped up that uh, you know I would have liked to have it finished up a year or two ago. Right. Um, I, I could have released it back in October, but because I wanted to put it onto consoles, it's taking me a little bit longer time to get right. that route you know rolled out. So. Well, that's very much like I don't know if you've ever heard of a game called Dust and Elysian oh, Tale. Yeah. That guy did it by himself too. Oh yeah. And yeah. That's one of my favorites. Oh, great. I fell in love with that game completely. Yeah. And he was here a few years ago too, and, and gave a demonstration and he had a panel up there oh yeah so. it's good to know it can be done oh it absolutely <laughs> it's also, can it's be done always nice 
Yeah, because I mean, to look at this and how fluid it is, and and the like, the twisting that you do, the, the gravity manipulation, and so forth. Uh, never would have guessed that this is your first game. Well, you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned the, the, the twisting and the levels moving around. That actually came in completely by accident. You know, I was, I was playing with my uh, level editor and started dragging the rotation around on some of these levels, and I was like, oh, gosh, I could just turn the whole level around. Wouldn't it be neat to do a whole game based on that? And so that's kind of where this whole concept grew from. Yeah, I mean, this, this looks so smooth and polished. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, optimization goes into it. Right. A lot of stuff behind the scenes to kind of keep it from chugging and having stutters here and there. So right. I'm, I'm glad to see someone has acknowledged that. No, no <laughs> it is. It's gorgeous. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how you're trying to get 60 frames per second mm -hmm. on console. What, what platforms is this going to be available on? Uh, this will be on Steam. It will be on Xbox and hopefully on PlayStation. Okay. You're going to look at anything like uh, Switch or... You know, I would love to have it released on Switch. Um, I, have, I probably have to wait and see what, if the economics justify that investment right. and, and see whether or not it flies on these consoles and that uh, on Steam before I pull the trigger on that. But so many people here have Switch consoles. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely amazing to me. And I, I was at PAX West last year, noticed exactly the same thing. It seems like PC gamers want to have a Switch so they can take it around their house, yeah. sit on the couch, you know, go upstairs, lay on the bed, and play the Switch. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really is taking off. Yeah, it is. Especially for something like this. This would fit so well with something like that. Yeah, I, I, would, I think it's a great a great idea. Hopefully the numbers will make it happen. Yeah. When do you have a release date expected? Um, I would I would say probably early August okay. is, is a target. It takes a little bit of time to line up everything for consoles, so some of that's out of my control, but that's right, what I'm shooting right. for. I guess with Steam, you can just put it up on Steam whenever it's ready. I could, I could push the button right now and have it on Steam, but uh, I kind of want to get all the different versions released at the same time to have right. the maximum impact, so that's, that's kind of what no, I'm shooting for. I understand for. that completely. It really is gorgeous. Oh, the crazy background you had going on there, like it was oh, yeah. getting all digitized. Like I said, I tried to make it hard to ignore. That was my number one goal, so... Well, it's it, because it's not distracting, but then when you notice, you see, wow, that looks really awesome in the background. Well, I'm glad somebody's and, paying attention to that, because yeah. I always wonder in the back of my mind, does anybody even notice the small details you put in the game? Yeah. Would it matter if it's there or not, but I'm glad somebody's seeing that. Yeah, well, I, there was another game, I can't remember the name of it, but I put a Steam review on it, and I mentioned how it was the hand-painted backgrounds, mm -hmm. and I mentioned how even the small details of, like, rust slightly coming down from rivets on doors, mm -hmm. and the art director responded to my Steam oh, review, really? saying yeah. that, you know, thank you, we really appreciate when people notice yeah. that stuff. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where a, a game is kind of like a movie or something where exactly. yeah, it takes so many different disciplines that come together on it, and you never really get the hear feedback as to one specific item. Right. It's usually thumbs up or thumbs down, and when somebody takes the time to say, I like this about the game, or I like this about a movie, it really does mean quite a bit. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful to look at. Like I said, I, I would love to see this in stereoscopic 3D, <laughs> but obviously that's a totally different... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's not impossible, though. I mean, no, it's not. It's, it's not. Uh, basically, I think for doing the uh, doing the stereoscopic stuff and also the VR things, it's, this... In some cases, it takes us a few minor modifications. In others, it takes a complete rewrite of some of the game systems. Right. But again, well, this in VR. Uh, yeah. It has to be a fixed, uh, a fixed view of it, maybe, right. or something. But yeah, who knows? If the, if, the, if the economics make sense, I'd love to try and do more experimental things with the game. But, yeah, there you, go. Uh, you know, right now, I'm just focus on getting it wrapped up. Well, thank you for talking with me. The, the game looks gorgeous. It's called Exception. That's right. And it should be out in roughly August yeah. time. You can't see it on the thing, but I'm crossing my fingers when we say early August. So. Uh, no, I don't believe me. <laughs>
I don't understand the people who complain when a game gets delayed. Because as far as I'm concerned, that means they found problems, yeah. they want to fix it. Let them go. It's like complaining when they're doing maintenance on your airplane at the airport. Yeah. You want them to do that. Yes, exactly. You want it to be safe, so yeah. So awesome. Well, well, thank you very much for talking with Thanks me. Thanks a lot. And good luck with the game. Yeah, I appreciate it. He was a lot of fun to talk to. He sounded it, actually. He, he was just really thrilled, and, you know, I, I made a comment there about the art design and the backgrounds, and he appreciated the fact that I noticed that, too. <laughs> but it, it's polished. It really looks good. It plays nicely. And the fact that he did it on his own, he's a banker. Yeah. And he made this game. It, it's fantastic. This is what the it, indie gaming scene is about. Yeah, I mean, you, as you were saying, it, it does look polished. I mean, you've got when you hit things and all these blocks explode all over the place, and it's like... Yeah. The 3D effects on, on those are really, really good. Oh, it looks fantastic. guess that's 2.5D? Is that what you'd call it? Something like that. Something yeah, like that. it's not, not quite 3D, but it's not flat either, so it's right. quite effective, though. It's a gorgeous-looking game. I'm definitely going to be buying that one when it comes out. And he was thrilled to hear that we did our interview with uh, Richard Garriott. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, our two-parter with Richard Garriott. Oh, yeah. I, I think Richard Garrett was our first interview, but he wasn't in our first podcast. As TGP Nominal goes, he was in our first expressive Yuri's Night of podcast because right. we, we actually got involved with it a bit more. And surprisingly, Richard was the first one to actually come on board and say, yeah, I'll, I'll happily talk with you guys, which... Was I was actually staggered by it. It was uh, um, <laughs> to actually get that too. response straight away. It was basically, yeah, get in touch with my PA and we'll sort something out. And it was like, really? What? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so yeah, sorry about that, Will. Wasn't the first episode. I can put a link to that episode or the two episodes actually in the show notes. So if okay. you do want to have a look at it, feel free. Okay, there you go. That works. And anybody else who didn't know about it, then they can go back and listen to it as well. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. So the next one, it was the same kind of situation. The developer was just thrilled to talk to someone who understood the game, appreciated the game, and that was Blazing Griffin Games for a game called Murderous Pursuits. That one, I think we'll just go right into the interview and let that do its thing. So, okay, I'm at the Blazing Griffin Games. Yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, is this your first game? This is uh, Murderous Pursuits. Is this your first game, or...? Uh, no, it's not our first game. So we have several in the portfolio. Um, we uh, originally acquired a game called The Ship. Um, oh, I, and, okay. Yeah, and a couple of the, the, the team that worked on it. And as okay. a matter of fact, Jason, who's here on the floor for us, right. I was part of the original dev team for the ship. Okay, I, I um, that. And then we assembled our company, um, brought some developers together under his leadership, and uh, actually cut our teeth on a, a, a thing called the Ship Remastered, which was a version of the ship. And then we took a, a break and put the whole team on making what we wanted that to always become, which is Murderous Pursuits, and raised enough money that we could actually make the bet get enough polish in mm-hmm. and put a bunch of abilities in right. so that we can release the game on the 26th of April that makes our, our team really proud. So we're hoping, Good. fingers crossed, that that's what we've done. Okay, I remember seeing the ship coming up on my Steam suggested list. Yeah. So that that's familiar to me. So... Okay, so it looks like it takes place when 1880s. Yeah, so it's it's this one's really interesting. So the backstory narrative is Victorian era, but it is a time travel ship. So they're oh. able to transcend certain times. 
Um, we go very, very light on that aspect of it because most of the gameplay happens within the ship's perimeter, mm -hmm. but the ship does fly. So when you see our key art on Steam, you'll notice that the ship is basically anchored above a forest. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And so what the, the backstory, the short version really is, is Mr. X we've kept from the original ship. Mm -hmm. um, we've reinvented Mr. X right. um, to be a little bit more modern. Um, our team likes to make fun of him and call him Sexy X. Uh, he's not quite as creepy. He's still as creepy, but he's a little bit sexier this time around. Right. And he puts eight of these ultimate assassins and killers together on the ship and tells them that whoever can earn his favor, only one of them can, mm -hmm. uh, will survive and the rest can be thrown away. And so the ultimate objective of the game is to kill or be killed. They've been placed in that ship environment to do that. Uh, and earn his favor and then be the ultimate successor of Mr. X. Okay, yeah, it, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, these assassins because what it really struck me as is that multiplayer part of Assassin's Creed, when that came out, that was very highly rated where it was you played different assassins and you had to hunt other assassins. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times today I've heard the comparison to Assassin's Creed multiplayer. Yeah. I myself didn't ever play that one. Right. But, but it's good because that was really highly rated. People yeah. were really enjoying that and one. And people have a lot of strong opinions about it. Everyone loved the idea of it. And then everyone has their complaints about what happened to it or uh, where you it know. went. Yeah. Um, so we, we, as an indie developer from Scotland, are completely and utterly flattered to be compared to Assassin's Creed anything. So um, that's just really quite an honor for us. It seems to be that we've hit a nerve, which is actually making us really, really excited because everyone seems to still be looking for that yes. kind of uh, Assassin's Creed multiplayer mm -hmm. stealth them up and we're just doing it through our own lens and our own background which was the ship into murderous pursuits um, right. and we're doing a Victorian era stealth them up so uh, hey, um, that's yeah hopefully I, I know a lot of people were upset when Ubisoft said we're getting rid of that part yeah. people were like what why it was so good so now I guess you can you can scratch that itch but that's what we're hoping I mean honestly it's been a complete we've kind of completely stumbled into it we're, maybe that's the miracle that maybe, we, yeah, you know, we've been needing um, on top of a really really great game I mean right and you're putting in a really cool setting too I mean it looks great oh thank it, you I mean our artists back in Edinburgh and Glasgow would be like over the moon just to hear that. Um, Nick is one of our character artists. He did all the posters of these characters. Okay. Uh, Nick Sean is another one of our artists and they're led by a guy named Sim, all based out of Edinburgh and Glasgow. And that's our almost our entire art team. I mean, it's really small. Yeah. And uh, because uh, everyone here uh, has been asking about the art style, we've decided to actually do a deluxe pack when we launch next week. Mm -hmm. So single keys at $19.99 on Steam, right. but we're doing a $29.99 uh, uh, deluxe pack, and in that we're going to do a full art book. So oh, nice. when I call the guys to say, hey, you know what, everybody's asking about the art. We're going to do an art book and put it in the deluxe pack, and they were like, what? Really? Like, <laughs> our stuff? Like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, oh, we'll, we'll figure it out. But they're yeah. like, they're back now in Edinburgh right now assembling all the best of their art, all the, uh, you know, early development art, right. and putting in this bo uh, book for the deluxe oh, package. Cool. And then we're going to put some exclusive skins in there as well. Right. That's cool. I mean, it's, it's an era that most games kind of don't really go to. Yeah. You know, it, it's so funny because we didn't really, like, look at the landscape, and we didn't really plan it that way, but... When we were coming in on the first day of the show, you know, we were coming up from the upper level on those escalators, and, um, you know, we're the little guy from Scotland, and we had to fight really hard, honestly, to get this placement, because right. we're, like, right about all the big guys, Yeah. and we, at one point, weren't even going to come to the show, and, and then we finally got offered a really good space, so we came in on the escalators first day to set up, 
and we stood up there on that top pier and looked down and saw the you know the the rich uh, cherry red maroon and uh, our name mm -hmm. and all of us just kind of stopped and screamed and just had goosebumps like oh my god look like we're right next to Twitch and yeah there's right Twitch to... there's PlayStation there's there's Aorus there's Legion yeah. gaming so yeah it just and we were gonna... like oh my god look uh, little guys from Scotland do get a get a, get a chance I mean it's amazing <laughs> so we just all kind of screamed and, and almost I mean one of our guys actually kind of started tearing up like Nice. You know, it's just a long way when you develop for like 18 months and you bet everything on it. So uh, we've been so grateful for everyone that's even been willing to stand in line to play our game. I mean, awesome. that's kind of a first for us to have people lined up around the booth like, and coming back to play a second time and a third time. So That's awesome. Uh, so response yeah. has been really positive then. Yeah, you know, it really, really has. And I think as an indie developer, you know, I can't help but think over the last few days, like a lot of people must spend all the sweat and tears doing these games and you show up and you just don't know what people are going to say and how disappointed it must be if someone actually said yeah your game's okay but i'm going to go do other stuff and right. you kind of come in and that's like the worst thing that could happen and we're so fortunate like not we haven't had any of that nice. as a matter of fact we haven't even had any really neutral responses and you know gamers will tell you oh I yeah mean, yes yes they they're will brutally honest and so the fact that we've had guys leave go get groups of six of their friends and wait several turns just so they could all play really? against each other here on the floor nice um, and that just keeps happening over and over again so we're kind of like wow okay so it's even surprising us seems uh, like you really did scratch that itch we hope yeah. i mean we really hope i mean i, I yeah we're just so humble we don't want to assume too much you know counting down days to the 26th but yeah i mean knock on wood so far everybody has just been and and people coming out of the woodwork to promote the game i mean all these we're meeting all these individual uh bloggers some of the twitchers have been by uh, right. youtubers and right. podcasters podcasters <laughs> you yes thank you by the way I, i'll give you a big hug after that's this yeah. um we're just so grateful because that's just you know we don't have budgets for that as an indie developer right. and the fact that when you guys like our game legitimately and genuinely people really respond differently than if we're out kind of like overtly trying to market the game right. to people so right. yeah we're just incredibly grateful for you guys okay so so tell me about the gameplay itself yeah. i mean is it the kind where you've got it's one against seven and you get hit and you're out and that's it or yeah. I mean, how does it work some of that is in the original ship gameplay but this game is actually quite different in that sense so there's eight players you pick your character you get to choose two of a, a group of special abilities that you go into the game with oh, okay. uh, for example you can disguise yourself to look like another player and there's a bunch of others like that. The game starts, and it's a timed game. Here on the floor, we're playing 10-minute games. Okay. And they get in the game, and then you're assigned a quarry. And that is your target or okay. your prey. And we won't tell you who that quarry is. It's your job to figure out who it is, find them on the ship, and assassinate them. Interesting. Uh, so there are clues about that let you Yeah, the, know there's that a meter on the top of the game. And I, the short version of that is like your hot, cold meter. Okay. You're hotter, you're colder. And then you still have to use your deductive abilities to make sure you found the right person. Right. They can also blend in with other bots that look just like them. Right. Uh, which gets very confusing. They can run around the corner and disguise themselves as someone else. Uh, so there's a lot of those kind of uh, flip you on the head kind of dynamics. And then the big twist is like why you're hunting your quarry someone else sitting here playing with you or online playing with you mm -hmm. has been assigned to kill you. Wow. So while you're seeking to kill someone else, you have to be very careful not to give yourself away. You almost want to be like a bot mm -hmm. um, or an NPC. 
and yeah, and blend in and make sure, because there's an exposure level mm -hmm. that you also have to maintain or you're completely exposed to your killer. Oh, okay. So, so like don't run if you don't need to, stuff yeah, like that. Only players can run. Uh, NPCs can't run. So if you do run in front of a room full of people, they will easily spot you out and likely one of them is your assassin. So. Nice. Uh, there are some small hallways that are really, I think, the best places to run through because no one can see you in those. So. Nice. Oh, okay, so you have just natural places to hide. Yeah, um, we were launching the game with four levels. Okay. We're quite proud of having four ready to go at launch, and we're working on some new levels, hopefully for the updates. Yeah, so those each of the levels are quite different. Some have bigger rooms, smaller hallways. Some have different environments, of all different areas of the ship they're actually uh, contained on. So... Uh, that gives you some variety of gameplay as well. Cool. So you're coming out on Steam in two weeks, not even two weeks. Yeah, April 26th is our big day. Fingers crossed, knock nice. on wood. Yeah. That's are, you gonna, are you looking to go to any other platforms? Yeah, we'll be going to some of the other PC game platforms. Um, they've been good partners with us on the ship. Um, over time, Humble, Humble Bundle and right. Green Man Gaming and some of those. So, um, What do you mean, like PlayStation, Xbox, or are yeah, you just like, so, sticking with PC for now? Or? No, so because uh, as an indie, you know, we have to choose. So yeah. uh, we do have, uh, we do want to port the game. And we are currently in uh, the process of talking to some companies that can help us port to console. But the first priority uh, before that is to do some localizations. Okay. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we had a that great meeting sense. with the Steam guys recently, and they were helping give us some advice. And we've also been talking to a lot of people on the floor, and there's just a lot of people that want a few localized versions and languages. Makes sense. And uh, we can do that pretty easily, so we're going to be focused on that right after the game launch, and then also uh, figuring out who our porting partner is. And if we're lucky, we could get a console ported out in time for the holidays, right. but that's uh, it's pretty tight timing for us. But, sure, but sure. That would be our dream. Yeah, it's going to be your focus then. So if people want to find out more about this, where do they go? Yeah, blazinggriffin.com is our uh, company. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's probably the best place to get some information, but Murder's Pursuits as a game itself uh, has social media channels. So we're on Twitter under Murder Pursuit. It's, high, it's a little bit abbreviated on Twitter. Right. Uh, we have Facebook. We have Instagram. And so we post on all those social media channels as well as the Blazing Griffin uh, social media channels. So pretty much between that, also in our Steam room, uh, we'll be updating that uh, with updates. Uh, we have a small database of ship players, and we're constantly sending out to those people, letting them know that it's coming and what's going on with the game. So, uh, yeah, pretty much if you somewhere in there, you'll find out about everything that we're doing or thanking. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Good luck with your launch. Thank you, you so know, much. Sounds like everything is ready to go well for you. Well, again, I can't appreciate your time enough. Like, thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, so. Not a problem. Yeah, yeah so that was a, a kind of a very unusual game, really, because the, the actual content of the game was quite unusual. But the, the fact that it's a very transatlantic game as well, because the... The guys that he was promoting, they were weren't they based in Scotland, weren't they? Oh yeah, so. he, he was not a Scotsman. <laughs> no, not at all. Because <laughs> I remember when he said that, yeah, we our first game was the ship, and I remember seeing that com coming up on my Steam recommended list. So I was like, oh okay, yeah yeah yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that was a fun interview. I enjoyed that one. That's not my kind of game. I wouldn't really do that because I didn't play the Assassin's Creed multiplayer either. It's just that's not my kind of thing. But boy, did that look good. Once again, I, I had a look at the trailer and, and some other clips of uh, of the gameplay and things, and I was getting a feeling. Um, I don't know if you remember a game called Time Splitters. Vaguely, 
I know the title. The characters in it, the way they are drawn, is very, very, very similar. The gameplay isn't isn't mm-hmm. nothing like it, but I just got this feel of time splitters uh, in it back in the old days of the the PS2. But yeah, it it looks like quite a fascinating game to be honest with you. It's, it's kind of you've got to keep alive if you like <laughs> in right, this right. thing, and there's everyone's out to get you, but mm-hmm. you never know what's behind the next door kind of situation. Yeah. It really is kind of ripped straight from Assassin's Creed in that mm-hmm. you get into a group and you suddenly blend in with the group. Yeah, that's what you do in Assassin's Creed. And that's not a complaint or anything, because the multiplayer part of Assassin's Creed was very highly regarded. People loved it, and they took it out. So now hopefully these guys can pick it up. But it was neat to hear him say that, yeah, people were skipping their turns so that they could wait for four or six of their friends to join in so they could all play together. <laughs> that's awesome to hear for an indie game. Yeah. You know, and, and where it was on the show floor is as soon as you come down the main stairs at the front of the building, pretty much there they were. So for this yeah. little indie studio to get that immediate kind of exposure is awesome. Yeah, that's very prominent. Yeah, so the game is already out. Well, it's out now. It came out on the 26th. Yeah, Murderous Pursuits. If you're into the multiplayer game where you kind of got to be a little bit stealthy, but yet not, and just the art design, it's, it's worth looking at. You'll probably notice that I drifted, not just to the indie studios, but the indie studios that kind of have games that look different. Yeah. I appreciate that. What can I say? Another one that I went to was called My Memory of Us, and that's actually from Juggler Games, which is based out of Poland. It is an adventure game that you play two characters, and you control one character at a time to achieve the goals and get to where you need to go. And it just it looks good. I played it. It was fun. Because uh, I, I like those kind of games too. I guess you can't really describe it in an audio podcast. It's it's but. very strange, isn't it? It's it's very cartoon like. Very ca- yes, but not. And you know it's Nazi Germany, but it's not. <laughs> it is a very very strange thing to describe, um, and I, I think the best way to describe it is sort of like the horrors of World War Two through the eyes of children. Yes. And, and the way that he presented it was that, well, you know, people still were trying to do their normal daily things, even while this horrific war was going on, and that's what the game is focusing on. You don't really see a lot of that. And, and also the fact that, the, as you say, the developing house is Polish, mm-hmm. so a lot of their family would have seen a lot mm-hmm. of this going on. Um, so there are plenty of stories for them to actually use as reference to to make the game well let's let him talk about it okay i'm here with lukas janczuk from juggler games okay so this game is my memory of us yes and well how would you describe this just a a regular puzzle platformer uh, no it's an adventure game with some of uh, platformer elements some of the stealth elements and you can control two characters, so it gives a little bit of spin uh, for a genre. Right. So, I mean, it's clearly not World War II, but yet it is World War II. Exactly. I mean, it's a fairy tale. Uh, it helps us uh, to tell the story that takes place during the World War, but in fact it's a story about friendship, the friendship of this girl and a boy. Uh, that's the main theme of the game. And the World War II is just a background... And also, because it's a fairy tale, we can avoid all of the dark elements of this period. Right, right. So, uh, what made you come up with this kind of uh, 
I mean, there have been a lot of, of World War II games and so forth, but what, what made you decide to come up with this kind? Well, uh, we are from Poland, so we've been touched by those events. I mean, we, yeah, have, oh, yeah. we have family members that still remember some of those, uh, some of these. So it's a living history from, uh, for us. Right. Uh, it, it's distant history for us over here. It's distant uh, even for us. I mean, uh, honestly, very few people uh, already uh, alive that uh, remember those uh, this time. Uh, but we all have family stories. Right. Uh, and... What's interesting, it's not always war stories. I mean, those are, those are those everyday stories that most of the game never tell. Mm -hmm. So we had an idea, let's try to tell those everyday stories. I mean, those people have a normal life during this dark time. Right. So why not try to tackle this subject from this side? Okay, that's cool. Um, and you don't see many games out there where you actually have that two, player, two players in one kind yeah. of dynamic to it. But obviously, it's black and white to fit that period as well. Uh, how long did it take? Is this out now, or how soon? Before? It's not yet uh, out. Uh, it's going to be released this year, Q3. Okay. Uh, we'll confirm the final date soon, and it will be released for Xbox, PS3, uh, PS4, and uh, PC, uh, okay. of course. And uh, what else? Uh, no, that's good. No, I love the art design to it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, and this is from uh, Juggler Games. Okay, Juggler right. Games, yeah. And thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. I love those kinds of games, and the, the black and white aesthetic to it. I'm not going to say that it's it looks like a fun game, because you know I, I guess it depends on how you define fun, but I'm definitely going to be buying it when it comes out. It looked very cutesy until you actually saw the bit where you've got the soldiers and their eyes are red. And yes. then it's, everything is black and white until you see the red in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of like, oh, no, this is not as cutesy as I thought this was going to be. No, 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 it's not. When I mentioned it's a distant memory for us, I meant actual, like, physical location. <laughs> Whereas mm. I'm sure, I'm sure the horrors of World War II are still very much alive in your part of the world. You know, the memories of it. Uh, pretty much. If you go to places like Coventry and have a look at the original cathedral which was bombed mm -hmm. um, and they've left it exactly as it was I've seen it and I thought it was just considered to be ruins and that's when my friend over in London said no that was bombed oh I'm looking at a World War II thing because mm -hmm. we obviously don't really have much of that over here unless you go to Hawaii yeah and they've also got a little display in there as a kind of... Um, I don't know how, how to put it, really. They've also got a thing about Dresden in Germany, which was one of the German cities that got bombed by the British. Mm -hmm. So they've got a kind of a thing there saying, well, yes, we got bombed, but they got bombed too. Have a thought for those people too. Which well, that's cool. I think that's quite nice. And they've also got a, a statue dedicated to the, the, the people of Hiroshima as well. That makes sense. This guy knows how to give the sales pitch, which, which is fine because I love their studio. It's Supergiant Games, and people probably know them more for Bastion or the successor to that, Transistor. Uh, I don't want to say successor. They're not in the same line, but you know what I mean. But I played the crap out of Bastion. I know that Transistor did very well. Well, they're there to talk about their new game called Pyre, so we'll just go right into it. 
Okay, so I'm here at the booth for Supergiant Games with their newest game, Pyre. Now, let me just start off by saying, well, first off... My, my name is Michael from Supergiant Games. Uh, I'm the operations manager for the team and run all of our conventions and uh, merchandise and all that stuff. Okay, that. cool. Yeah. Well, let me just say that I am a huge fan of Bastion. Thank you. Played the crap out of it on PC, Xbox, you name it. Love yeah. the music to it. Uh, everything about that game is so good. And obviously, I guess that is probably your biggest hit up to this point. Actually, uh, Transistor is oh, like, oh, Transistor, yeah, that's right, our, our right. second game was, uh, uh, you know, slightly more successful than Bastion, right. a great follow-up, but uh, yeah. Well, but, Bastion is definitely what got you guys out yes, there. Yes, absolutely, yeah, our claim to fame. Right, so how how would you describe Pyre? I mean, it looks like an RPG, but it also looks like a sports game. Right, yeah, it's an interesting mixture. Uh, we ca- like to call it a party-based RPG. Uh, it's got kind of a couple playstyle elements going on. On the one hand, it's very narrative-heavy. So uh, uh, some people have compared it to a visual novel in some respects, right. uh, where uh, you're, you're introduced to a whole cast of characters. It's our biggest cast of characters yet in a game we've made. Uh, and you're, you're on a mission to free yourselves from this purgatory called The Downside. And that's where this other gameplay uh, comes into uh, the mix, which is sort of a three-on-three isometric battle system. Uh, where each of you or each of these teams of triumvirates are trying to take a celestial orb and get it into their opponent's pyre. Each time they do that, they diminish the flame. And the first team to diminish the opponent's flame uh, proves their worth, hopefully, uh, and and basically is on this mission to free themselves by by proving their worth through these ceremonial rites. So, yeah, yeah, a lot going on. Uh, it's it's there's a it's a very deep, complex game. It's our biggest game yet. But, uh, yeah, we'd love for you to give it a try and yeah, check it out. I'm just trying to figure out who comes up with these ideas. Yeah, That's... yeah. We're a very small team. Uh, we're very fortunate to have, uh, you know, the wild imagination of Greg Kasavin uh, guiding the story development on our games. Uh, he stuck around. He did Bastion and Transistor as well. And, yeah, just wanted to go kind of like full narrative on this game. And, it's yeah, it shows. And, and hopefully you enjoy it. So you say it's three versus three, but is it actually, is it multiplayer only can you do it single player yeah so single player is our bread and butter and it's traditionally like or not traditionally but is definitely a single player uh campaign uh we also offer multiplayer but only locally right so you can play 1v1 on your couch when i say 3v3 you control three characters but you can only move with one at a time so that's kind of how it comes into a single player controlled game and you decide which of the three characters you have on your group exactly yeah and every time uh, you participate in one of these rights you get to customize which of your characters participates so you know you might want to go with only your small quick characters or maybe your tanky larger characters you kind of like mix it up and you know so it's very strategic in those ways as well wow okay so i'm I'm not a sports fan but you have enough of the rpg stuff that it could still appeal to people like me absolutely yeah yeah so we've definitely heard people compare it to a sports game my favorite thing was a magical nba jam (laughs) you can definitely see that a bit yeah but yeah we 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 think it's an interesting mix of kind of the strategic combat of transistor and the action-based rpg combat of bastion uh, and we blend it into this arena. So, you know, it does feel like a sport in some respects, but it definitely feels like that kind of action, quick-paced uh, arena battle system that you're familiar with in our first two games. So, okay. Yeah. What platforms is it out for? So it's out on Steam for PC, Mac, and Linux. It's also out on PlayStation 4 right now. So those okay. are the those Will are it be moving to Xbox at any point? Uh, we don't have any plans right now. Really? Uh, we haven't ruled anything out for the future, but right now uh, we're sticking for those platforms that we've released on, and we'll see what the future holds. But. Interesting. I mean, I don't own an Xbox, so I don't care. I'm a PC gamer sure. through and through. Yeah. But uh, I'm interested, why not looking at Xbox? Just you don't so, see a demand there? 
It's actually, uh, it's not that we don't see demand. We definitely hear it from people, especially our, our early fans who played Bastion on Xbox. Uh, we definitely oh, yeah. haven't forgotten about them. Oh, and recently yeah. ported Bastion to Xbox One uh, and, you know, uh, definitely like want to continue supporting that platform. As for Pyre uh, and Transistor also, uh, it's definitely no easy task for us to port our games. We uh, work in a custom engine, right. um, so and we're a team of oh, only 15 okay. people. Uh, so it's no, you know, it's definitely like a huge undertaking for us to take on a new project. And we also want to make sure we're able to like, you know, get into new ideas right. and new projects. Um, so I didn't. What, well, we, I, I didn't realize that the Xbox One was that different. I thought that they were pretty much the same all across. You know. Yeah, it's still there's still some effort to customize it for each platform okay. and to make it That's worthwhile on each platform and and to put all the support we need to behind it. Uh, and like I said, you know, we're only a team of 15, and it's like that includes engineers and marketing and right. you know creative and designers and all these people. And you know, they are all involved in that right. boarding process. And it lets uh, you have a tight focus on what you want to do. Exactly. So. Yeah. And so we kind of got to maintain that focus and and kind of choose our battles but again when we have the bandwidth and you know and if it's possible like I said we wouldn't rule it out right so okay so for, finally for Bastion fans like me yeah will we ever hear from the kid again uh, you know we haven't ruled that out either <laughs> yeah yeah we hear a lot of interest from people who want to see a Bastion 2 and return to that world but you know we're kicking around ideas for what's next after Pyre nothing to announce just yet but right. but stay tuned alright cool well yeah. thank you very much thank you so much and uh, good luck with the game thanks a lot have a great back yeah you too yeah he knew how to give interviews <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong no. with that. Not criticizing it at all. I thought it was awesome. And so you were saying it was kind of it had this sports feel to it. It does. The, the way he was describing it, I, I don't know if you remember a game. It was based around the, um, the the Crash Bandicoot series called Crash Bash. You had to push people out the way and push them off of things to to be the one standing, the le- last one standing kind of thing. But it kind of came across that with a fantasy twist. Right. They were there last year as well. And I really thought it was like, oh, this is actually a, a sports game. I've now got no interest in it. But after talking to him, it's like, you know what? I might actually give this a chance now. Plus, I, I do love Supergiant games. I do trust them. And just to show support, you know, buy the game and maybe give someone else the code. You know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. Maybe I'll actually just try it for myself. If it is more RPG than sports, I might actually give it a shot because it looks good. One of the other kinds of games that it, it kind of has a stigma that it doesn't deserve called a walking simulator. I hate that name because that's like saying, oh, well, it's not a real video game. Yeah, bite me. There's nothing wrong with a walking simulator. You know, some of them, even if you just need two hours to relax and chill. Mm-hmm. There was one game that I played called Abzu. It's a swimming simulator if you want to go that way. The whole thing takes place underwater. And the whole idea is to just go through, find these underwater shrines, free them, find all the pieces needed to get it all done, and then you move on to the next activity. But it's gorgeous to look at. It's absolutely gorgeous to look at, and it's 3D compatible. So I was playing this in 3D on my 3D TV, which was amazing. Absolutely amazing to look at. And all of this underwater life that you're discovering and so forth. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those kinds of games. There's one game out there called Gone Home. And it's the same kind of thing. There's no threats. You come home to your parents' house. Nobody's home. It's completely empty. Lights are turned off. And they knew you were showing up. So what's going on here? 
and the whole premise of the game is you're going through and you're reading you know notes that family members left and newspaper clippings and stuff like that to most people that might seem humdrum and boring and so forth but it guides you on so that you're getting these you know a little couple more clues and finally things start to take a little bit of a dark turn so now it's like okay what is going on here and then the ending is it you go up into the attic of your parents house Dude, I did not want to go up into that attic. I was terrified to learn what happened. And it all had a, a happy ending. But still, it, it was enough that it built enough curiosity and tension just from these little clues all over the place that I, I did not want to go into that attic. I was like, oh, God, I, I don't want to know what happened to my family. Oh, God, no, 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 no. But it, it ended up having a happy ending. But still, that is a quote-unquote walking simulator. And it was an amazing experience. They did have a couple of those out there. One of them is called Shape of the World, and that's from a, a company called Hollow Tree Games. And I got to talk with the sound designer, uh, the guy who did the music, called Brent Silk. And, uh, well, this is what he had to say. Okay, so I'm talking to Brent Silk. I'm the audio guy for Shape of the World. Okay, so Shape of the World is, what would you call this? I call it an indie exploration game, sort of in the genre of Proteus or Journey. Okay, okay. Uh, or maybe games like uh, Abzu? Yes, I, I played that yeah. one. In that. For sure. So it's, a, it's meant to be a very zen, relaxing, that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely relaxing to play through and kind of get this urge to explore and find different things that sort of help unlock uh, the ability to sort of go from one biome to the next. There's like these gates that you go through, they sort of activate these monuments, you touch the monuments and they activate bridges and so on and so forth and yeah, you kind of start off like on the shore and you want to sort of progress through the game to the end and along the way you'll find other biomes like caves, mountains, Stuff like that. Yeah. Is, is it the kind where it's um, there is a set a set landscape to it, or I mean, is it somewhat dynamic in its its rendering? Or I would say that it's a sculpted, designed world, but um, some elements sort of just uh, appear as you go along, like the foliage, for example. The okay. trees sort of spring up in front of you as you're walking. Is it meant to be one of those that? really should be played with headphones on just to totally relax and chill and all that i i would recommend headphones for sure if you have a good pair go for it but um or just pump up the speakers and i mean like it's nothing's gonna be shooting at you or chasing you really so yeah it's, it's definitely zen it's definitely a pretty chill experience i would say yeah what came? I mean, what made you decide, you got your guys to come up with this kind of an idea? Just because there aren't enough of these? I don't really know why my friend came up with this idea. I think he likes games that are a bit different. He used to do this kind of two D artwork and sort of evolved, I think, into this game. Actually, um, I don't even know if he knew what he was making, but he just kind of made it as he went along and tried to make it fun and i think he succeeded in, in doing what he wanted you know which yeah. was just make something that 
makes you want to explore, make you want to journey. So yeah, and it's something yeah. if you only have a few hours of time and you don't want to go killing, shooting things. Exactly. This is a good way to just calm down and, and wind down. Totally. Yeah, it's just a great way to chill out for an hour and a half or so, or however long it takes you to beat. Yeah. So what platforms is this out for? It's going to be out on the Switch, Xbox, uh, PlayStation, and Steam. So basically all the major ones. Yeah, pretty much. Is is it out now? Is it going to be out? Uh, We're looking at about uh, late spring, early summer release. Okay. And if people want to find out more about it, where can they go? Um, They can go to shapeoftheworldgame.com. I love the Exidy t-shirt. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm old school. I remember those Exidy cabinets. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm an old school gamer too, so there you go. There you go. That was from Hollow Tree Games. It, it's Shape of the World. And the music that you heard is actually from the game because the guy that I spoke to is a guy who created the music and he gave me a code where I could download a couple of the songs and he gave us permission to use it in the podcast. So it was very much like what he was going for. It's just, you've had a stressful day, you just want to relax, put your headphones on, fire up Shape of the World, listen to the music and just walk around and discover the environment. It is very strange because you start off, it's, it's virtually nothing there. And the no. more you move, the environment builds around you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the music itself, it, it, it does remind me of some of the, when I say electronic music musicians, I'm not talking about the, the dance music guys, I'm talking mm-hmm. about your people like your Jean-Michel Jars and your Tangerine, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tangerine Dream. And I don't know if you're familiar with Yellow Magic Orchestra. No, but... It- at least here in the States for 20 years ago, maybe, there was a big advertisement for a, an audio disc series called Pure Moods. Imagine a world where time drifts slowly, a world where music carries you away. Experience Pure Moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. Direct from Europe, this multi-platinum collection has won the hearts of millions. Set adrift with the timeless pleasures of tubular bells. Or take a trip into the unknown with the X-Files theme. No other collection gives you the feeling of pure moods. To order Pure Moods, call the number on your screen or send check or money order for the amount shown, plus shipping and handling. Rush delivery available. Call now. I remember that. There you go. (laughs) This music would fit on Pure Moods. Yeah. It's, It's just one of those games that you just, like Abzu, you just play it to chill out and become engrossed in the environment. I Honestly, I don't think there are enough of those games out there, to be quite Mm. honest. And hey, if you don't like those kinds of games, you don't have to play them. Exactly. I mean, not everybody likes the same thing, do they? No. That's one of the nice things that I love about going to PAX. Here I was, 
talking with the guy who wrote the music. Yeah. Not going to get that from any AAA developer. No, that's that's for sure. And it is, I mean, you can just sit there, you can listen to it, and it is very relaxing. Close your eyes and, and lean back and enjoy. I'll probably get that one. It's kind of funny that I play a lot of those hidden object games. Mm -hmm. Those are targeted specifically at women. But you know what? If I need two hours to just chill out and I don't want to have to go shooting things, those hidden object games, they they scratch an itch. The shape of the world is the same kind of thing. Yeah, I I just was fascinated by the the way that you can turn and whatever angle you turn, something comes out of nowhere. It just Mm -hmm. envelopes out into yeah. this new environment. Yeah, that kind of random generator. Well, I mean, he said yeah. that there is some kind of, there is a level of randomness to it, but then it just it just pops up, so you never know what's going to happen next. But it's nice, you know, no threats, no bad guys to worry about. There's so many games out there that look great. I was like, "Oh, that game looks like so much fun." And then I find out it's a survival crafting game, and I hate those. It's like, oh, no, you're killing me. That game looks so good. Oh, well. So it's nice to have these kinds of games where there are no enemies. You don't have to worry about anything. Just walk around. Uh, You might have already noticed that I like games that have a unique look to them. You know, something that just is eye-catching. This next one definitely qualifies. And it's called Bendy and the Ink Machine from a company called Meatly Games. In fact, the guy who does the game and, and owns the company or whatever, he's known as The Meatly. <laughs> that's his handle on Twitter, The Meatly. <laughs> you go to their website, that's what his name is, The Meatly. <laughs> that's okay, hey, whatever works. But this game looks so cool. It's an episodic game, and it's like they took a 1930s cartoon, kept the 1930s aesthetic, made it 3D, but yet it still looks like it's 2D. It's a really cool-looking game. Have you Did you take a look at that one yet? Um, yeah, I did have a look at it. The first thing I thought of when I saw it was Steamboat Willie. Yes, very that much one. that aesthetic, yes. And as you went around, I, was, I got this feel of, is this going to be a, like a detective thing, a bit like Who Framed Roger Rabbit kind of thing? Yeah. Uh going on but as you say it's 2d but the odd occasional thing that is like some of the furniture and things stand out uh-huh. and then there's obviously yeah. other bits and pieces moving in the background um i only watched a trailer for it ah okay within the space of a minute it went from this cartoony kind of thing to getting darker and darker as oh, it yeah. went in he actually does call it a horror game but it's not like you know resident evil not that mm. kind of horror game. It's still very cartoony. And there are some stealth elements to it. And it looks like a lot of fun. And it's got an art design that stands out. And I was immediately drawn to it. So I had to talk to the guy. Okay, so I'm here with... Book Pass, uh, one of the people who, working on Bendy and the Ink Machine. Okay, and what's your studio name? Uh, the Meatly Games. Okay. The first thing that draws people in this game is the art style. It's very much... 2D, 1920s, but yet it's 3D. What made you come up with that kind of design aesthetic? Okay, the Meatly, when he first came up with the idea, it was really simple. He was just saying, I wonder what it would look like to walk through a sketch of a cartoon made in the 1930s, but in 3D. So that was how it started, just a small demo. Then he thought, oh, it needs a character. He drew the character Bendy, the main antagonist, uh, in 10 minutes. Basically, put the whole thing together, put it up on Game Jolt, was just going to see, ah, it's just another game we're working on. 
literally went to bed, literally woke up the next morning, and his Twitter feed was ridiculous. <laughs> and so it all kind of grew from there. At that point, he realized, him and Mike Mood, co-creators of the game, realized that uh, they they need to make this game. They need to write it and make it really good. And since then, it's really our fans, YouTubers, and other people. It's just grown into what it is today, and we're just amazed. Right. I mean, it's definitely unique. There are no other games like it that I've ever seen. Well, thank you. Um, it doesn't even really... I know that uh, Cuphead is the big one that's all 1920s and so forth, but this is obviously nothing like that because this is more 3D. Would you... Is this adventure is it puzzle is it uh, horror internally you got it all oh, okay. internally we call it a puzzle action horror we have a little bit of puzzle a little bit of action a little bit of horror so just the right amounts of everything is what we aim for the premise is basically it's a 1930s cartoon studio you play as henry the lead animator who used to work at the studio <laughs> left years ago and came back when he got a note from his old ex-boss, Joey Drew, to come look at something. At the beginning of the game, you play as Henry, you arrive at the studio, and right at the beginning, no one greets you, and you know something is wrong. You don't know what it is, but you're pretty sure it has something to do with that character, Bendy, that you used to draw, and in Ink Machine. The story unfolds chapter by chapter, and uh, it's twists and turns. You never know as you meet people, as things happen. You just never know what's going to happen next. Right. I mean, I saw some people playing that it has more like some stealth elements where you have to stay out of the light. Uh, another one had like a, a chase scene. What kind of elements are all brought together on this? The gameplay varies a lot by chapter to chapter. We really want to make it a thinking game and also have some action elements. At times, you do have a weapon. Other times, you have to do stealth. Other times, you don't have either, and you really have to just figure it out. We wanted to vary it and always keep it, you know, surprising you. Uh, set it, kind of setting up people to expect something and then totally throw them for a loop when something else happens. I still can't get over the art stuff. I mean, it's 3D, clearly, but it feels, like you said, like you're walking through a 2D animation. The Meatly actually hand-draws every texture himself with a mouse. Really? He hand-draws everyone. He's actually doing that right now while we're at this event, working on Chapter 5, drawing it out chapter right now. Chapter 5? How many chapters five. are you going to have? Five. Five okay, is so the five. end. It's the conclusion, and then we're all done. Then, uh, once we're done, it'll also be out on console later this year. Mm -hmm. So, Xbox One, PS4, and Switch. So, right now, it's just strictly Steam and Strictly tablets? Steam, yep. Okay. Strictly Steam and uh, no tablets, oh, no just tab Steam. Okay. Yep, and Chapter 1 is free. Okay, because I thought I saw someone playing it on a... Oh, tablet well, over there. that's nice that you mentioned that. that. Over there, that's a different game, oh, another okay. game we're working on. When we were working on Bending the Ink Machine, we started to realize that a lot of our audience is younger than what we're aiming for, since it is an horror, and a horror game has some horror elements. Mm -hmm. So we thought it'd be great to have something else, something that we could ha maybe hit a lower age demographic. Right. So that's when we came up with the idea of Bendy and Nightmare Run. And where Bendy and the Ink Machine is the studio, mm -hmm. Bendy and Nightmare Run are the cartoons the studio is making. And in them you play as Bendy. We call it a, a boss runner. Basically, you're being chased by a boss. Right. Okay. Yep. So chapters one through five, available on Steam. Yep. Um, well, actually, chapter four comes out this month. Oh, okay. So we're still working so on it. Five. Yep, and Chapter 5 will come out when the console version's released, too. It'll all be one big hit. Oh, nice. So, yeah, and that'll be this year, 2018. Cool. So then, uh, what are your plans for this? Go oh, look at this. <laughs> yeah, we got cosplayers everywhere. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. The fans blow our minds constantly. There's always so wow. many more of them than we expect, so we're really thrilled. We're really nice. thrilled. Yeah. Okay. And we're just a small team. There's seven of us, so it's, it's blowing our minds. 
the, the thing we wanted to do when we wanted to create it is do it our own way and not have really anyone above us. When this became popular, we had an opportunity to do that and really do things our own way So, because we answer to no one but ourselves and right. our fans. But the good part about doing it in chapters is how it's allowed us to change it, adjust it based right. on what our fans love, based on what surprises them, and adjust and make sure that it's exactly what they'd like and also give them surprises along the way. Right, I know there was a lot of complaints when a lot of these games started to go episodic. Yes. It's like, well, what is all this? And then yeah. Telltale came along and proved, uh, guys, we can make this work. Yep. And so, as you said, it's, this is the way that a lot of games are released now because they get curious and they want more. We like this. We want more. You're going to make us wait. There is so many theories as to what's going to happen in, in Chapter 4. All over the Internet, on YouTubers, fans. <laughs> they, they, it's been so exciting. to. We know the ending. We know what's going to happen. Right. But really seeing everyone else wonder and study and think maybe it's this, maybe it's that. It's really exciting to watch. We love watching all the fan videos. We watch them all. Nice. And we enjoy them. So when's the cartoon series coming out? <laughs> no. uh, next. Next. Then we'll go for motion pictures and all that. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck with the game. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's already downloaded. I just need to play it. Especially since the first episode is free. <laughs> but it was cool that there was a guy and his nephew who were dressed up as Bendy. Ah, right, because I, I, I did hear you say there, so, oh, yep. look at this kind of thing, and it was somebody in cosplay. Oh, you'll see it when I get the photos up to you. <laughs> it was really cool-looking outfit. It just looks like a cool game. And again, it's something that the AAAs wouldn't touch. You know, it, it, cause it's a very unique aesthetic to it, but mm-hmm. it just it looks really cool. So now the big one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what happened was, I went in on Thursday, now that they have a four-day, and I played a 100% VR game called Scraper. This game is amazing to look at and play. Again, it's strictly VR. Right now, it's only Oculus. They are going to be coming out with Sony PlayStation VR version. And they said eventually they'll get to where you can play it on any PC and so forth. So they strapped me in, and I've had no problems with any of it. Well, I started watching it, really, because the first two or three minutes... You play a soldier, you're in your drop plane, and the sides are open. So you are just sitting there looking around, listening to your your comrades and so forth, talking about the mission that you're about to do. And you're seeing all these bright skyscrapers lighting up the night sky and just looking around at everything. And of course, it's VR. So it's all 3D. It's completely responsive to the way you look. And you finally get to your destination, and that's when the game takes over. You know, when you actually start doing stuff. It was a fun experience. I mean, I, have, I really don't have a problem with VR. I could sit and use Google Cardboard looking at stuff for hours and not feel nauseous. But this one, and I, I even say this in the interview, we're talking to him, but my concern is about how are you going to do VR if you can't walk? That's the big thing. People talk about doing Skyrim or you know, one of those other kinds of, of first-person RPGs. How do you do that, but yet not get people sick because they're not walking, they're sitting? And the game actually covers that. The demo was about 20 minutes, and it probably took me about 15 minutes in before I realized that I was playing it like a keyboard and mouse, <laughs> which was dumb. <laughs> I was, I was just, my left arm was just holding still doing the movement, and my right arm was doing all the firing. <laughs> and then finally I realized, oh, you dummy, because you're in this floating chair mech kind of thing. You know, and that's like, oh, okay, now I just get both my arms up, and I'm starting to shoot at the enemies. It really does take a mind change to play those kinds of games, but it was a lot of fun. So I did that on Thursday. The developers were there, so I was able to talk to the developers on what I thought, and 
I went in the next day, and there's a guy out front. I was like, oh, what's this all about? Well, the guy was selling books that he made, which are prequels to this game. I was like, wow, wait a minute. They got a prequel book to this game? This is weird. Started talking to the guy. He and I were chatting for like a half hour. It was amazing. And the guy's name is Ryder Wyndham, and he actually is a New York Times best-selling author. He's written several Star Wars books. He's written Indiana Jones books. Well, he actually writes the Haynes manuals for uh, the Star Wars one, so he's done the one for the Millennium Falcon, and he's done the go. Death Star one. So. Heaven knows you have enough of those kinds of books. <laughs> you might even have some of his books. You never know. But it was amazing, and he and I were just talking and, and going back and forth about how he came up with the ideas and so forth. And he was also the other one who solidified my need to bring my recorder in. And I told him about that. He was like, oh, no, good. come on in tomorrow and, you know, we'll, we'll talk. Here's, here are the times that I'm going to be available, blah, blah, blah. It's like, great. Brought my handy little Zoom in the next day. So this is going to be a longer interview. It's, a, it's broken into two parts. The first one is me talking with Victor Matos, who is the program manager. So the game is called Scraper. The studio is called Labradex Studios, and well, let's let's just go into the first part. Okay, so we are at the Labradex Studios booth, and this is for an upcoming VR-only game right now, or is it always right. going to be? It is uh, VR-only right now for the Oculus platform. Okay, and I know that it'll be coming to Rift and so forth. So I actually played the demo the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, so this is called Scraper. And the the subtext to it is taking back New Austin one scraper at a time. So, what is a scraper? Alright, so uh, there isn't really too much going on with the scraper name. It's just that since the game is futuristic and Mm -hmm. a lot of the buildings that you see are city skyscrapers, right? Oh, okay. Um, You know, it just kind of takes off after that. Okay, so it's about skyscrapers, all right. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense, because I saw in the intro as you're flying in, mm-hmm. all of those tall buildings coming out of a... I'm assuming that the uh, ice caps have melted and everything's flooded. And is that, <laughs> I assume that's how that works? <laughs> I'll let the book explain the context. Ah, so. okay, well, that's true, so I'm going to talk to him later, too. Yeah, no, for sure. So, okay, so why VR only? So, right now, um, VR is in a really interesting place where what we're seeing is, yeah, like, we're actually getting some really cool technology with, you know, Oculus's, like, hand-tracking devices, but we're currently only really seeing, like, technical demos, nothing that has, like, a really bigger scope than a technical demos. Um, What we're trying to do is that we want a a game that has narrative, that has, like, RPG elements, that has, uh, you know, on top of just being a shooter. There's already some some fantastic, like, shooter titles, we just wanted to take it to the next level. There are plenty of console and PC like shooter games with great RPG elements. They just haven't been done for the VR yet. Right. And we want to like step, like actually get like a, the VR platform and that experience. We want to be able to have games upgrade to that next level so we can start seeing some really cool titles, right? And we okay. want to be part of that, putting that first step, you know, forward. Okay. Uh, what was the decision to go with a? futuristic dystopian kind of uh, theme um I think Jim probably would have a better idea of what he wants to like say to that question um so I'll defer that to him to okay is he yeah. here uh, um yeah Jim is here oh okay hi how are you hi how's it going good Jim Ivan nice to meet you uh John Berger with a podcast called TGP Nominal we cover science fiction and, and stuff like that so, but stuff. I've been a gamer since the Commodore 64 and the Atari 2600 so I remember those oh, they yeah. don't but yeah. I do yeah these kids these days remember the Intellivision oh my god yes. yeah right that oh, was yeah. great yep, I got that <laughs> so no, I was just wondering because I played the demo on Thursday and really enjoyed it I was just wondering 
there's already been so much on dystopian, futuristic AI that goes crazy and tries to take over. Why? What made you think to try to tackle that one again with a VR-only game? Um, I think the VR element certainly adds something more unique to it. It's certainly been done on PC and book and movies and everything else. It's also something, just for me personally, I've been interested in and read a lot about. And it's certainly in the news with people like Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and those yeah. guys fighting over AI, and it's going to destroy us, it's going to save us, those types of yeah, things. Yeah, I think Elon Musk is going to be terrified of this right? game. Yeah, right, exactly, where Mark Zuckerberg is like, no, bring it on, it's going to do good for the world. Right. So, um, But it was more a take on combining elements that are happening, too. Like, over the next 50 years, most of the population is moving into cities, so we combine that. The name of the game is Scraper, which comes from Skyscraper. Um, and the robot part was more, if it's a true AI, you know, where it can think on its own, you know, what will it do at some point? You know, because uh, in the game, I don't want to give too much away from the right. book or the future stories, but if they truly can make up their own mind, are they going to come to a point, you know, where something happens where they decide, hey, we're going to go this direction, or no, we're going to go that direction. So kind of exploring that, we have some incredible twists at the end of the game, the next game, the book, and I want to give them all away, but I can't. Right. So we're hoping we can build up that that first part and get people to read it and see things unfold as the game you know unfolds in the story and everything else. Okay, so you're making this just one small part of a much bigger realm that oh, goes yeah. even goes outside of the game, obviously with the books and so forth. Yeah, the hope is is that we've got a, a three game arc plan, and it's already mapped out. It's all the way to the final. That's the part I want to tell everybody. Nice. And each game is going to have it's episodic, so we're going to have five episodes per game. So that means there are 15 episodes. So this is just episode one. Okay. Yeah, it's already. I bought the book too, and I'm oh, going to be did. interviewing him later as it's well. Amazing. Yeah, Ryder is here, the author of the book. So you yeah. got to meet Ryder. Yeah. So that, that that's all good. Um, I guess the only thing, the, the real question is, VR is still, it's in its infancy. Yes, yeah. people may have messed with Google Cardboard, things like that, but <clears throat> it's still cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Uh, Sony's working on that, trying to bring their prices down. But again, you got to buy the console for that too. So, but why, why restrict yourself to what is right now such a small audience? Right. I think for us as a new studio, we wanted to do some things that were a little bit unique and different. So one of the things we did, like bringing, bringing in Ryder to write the story. Uh, we have Winifred Phillips who did the music, the real successful AAA artist or musician. Uh, we have a bunch of AAA artists on the outside to combine sort of with the indie studio effect and to get the most note as VR, AR, certainly the elements right now that everybody's paying attention to. Right. And for us as a new studio, I think it would have been harder to go out and try to compete against Blizzard, Electronic Arts, with a PC game. Where in this space, it's still more indie studios, so we wanted to produce something at that AAA level to get recognition. And also with Scraper, when you played it, you played the demo. Yeah. We, when we initially designed it, it was designed so it would work on a PC. It absolutely is. You, you could easily control the pod and WASD to move and fire. So it works as a PC game, a console game, and those are coming. We're just okay. starting on with the Oculus. PSVR, Vive will be next, but certainly expanding into the console market and the PC market. Okay, because that's the, that's the other question is, would you plan on going to, play, to a PlayStation VR? Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, we, we actually, we're Sony devs, we have the dev kit. Oh, okay. And we've already, as a test, spent a few days to get it on the uh, PSVR dev, or PS dev kit to see if it would work. And it runs. Because the game, as you can tell, it's pretty intense, it's pretty graphic intense, and that's hard to do in, in yeah. VR. 
and the, the PlayStation certainly isn't as powerful as a powerful computer. So we wanted to know. We were curious. So we put it on there, and they got it running. It needs, of course, we got to change the controller scheme, and we have lots to work to do, but we felt pretty good that, all right, it's actually running at a decent frame rate. So Yeah, it was nice and smooth, and just that that two-minute intro or whatever where you're flying in through the skyscrapers was gorgeous. There's no other word for it. It was bright and colorful, and it just it looked great. Yeah, and that was by design. You know, the, the intro, we wanted people to be able to sit there and more like an epic movie intro with the music and the feeling. You didn't have to do much but take in all the eye candy, you know, and be able to just look around before you start killing everything, focusing on staying alive and enjoy that moment to bring you into the game. And it's, it's hard with the demo because it's so cut down. Right. You know, and the, the full game, you know, when you land, you talk to multiple other people, there's a, a training area, other things happen that slow you, work you into it. So it's hard because we want people to sit down, instantly know what you're doing, and have fun, but it takes a few minutes to get that under control. Yeah, yeah that's one thing I found. It's like, he kept saying, okay, now hit the button. It's like, what? <laughs> so, you, so you point your finger and actually poke at the oh, button, yeah. which, and that, that was one of those things I had to wrap my head around. And then... It took me until like two-thirds of the way in before I consciously realized I was still acting like keyboard and mouse, right. so I was shifting my position instead of trying to use both hands to do what needed to be done and to shoot and to defend myself and so forth. Yeah, and it takes a while to adapt, and when, when you really realize, wait, I'm actually inside this world. It is all around me, above me, beyond me, and it, it, it could take ten minutes, a half hour, but once you let yourself really get into the world, it's incredibly fun. Because then you feel like you are killing, you know, these enemy robots and in this pod and, you know, helping this faction take back the reactor building and doing all these things. Obviously, the biggest challenge, I think, for VR is people who, motion sickness and, and that sort of thing. What are you doing to try to overcome that? Okay. Question. So there are three things that we have going for us. Uh, the, the most uh, simple one to explain is that we're running at 90 frames per second. This is incredibly important because by having higher frames and not having those frame drops, you don't disturb, like you don't bring up the motion sickness. Uh, the second thing that we're doing is something called vignetting. Uh, this is basically where whenever we rotate the, uh, the, the pod or whenever like you're going really fast, we cause the exteriors of like the on your peripherals I to darken. That. I was wondering what that was about. Yeah. So what that basically does is that it makes the like it, by darkening the screen, your peripheral doesn't see that you're moving. So it's kind of like looking through a telescope. You don't get motion sickness when you're looking through a telescope or anything, because like most of your vision is focused on the center. Right. Right. The third thing that we're doing is something called frame of reference, and that is that you're stationary within, like, a pod. Like, think about you're in a right, vehicle, right? right? Um, because you have, like, something that's stable um, along with, with yourself, I and mean, you're looking through, like, a, you know, not a screen, but you're looking out through the windows mm -hmm. of the pod. The frame of reference makes you feel less motion sickness. Right, so. and that, that's been an argument that I've said for a long time, that VR probably isn't going to do well unless it's something like a cockpit yeah. or you're sitting down in something because your legs obviously aren't moving. So I was wondering how you were going to approach that one, and obviously that, that worked. Neat. So. That, by the way, that's a huge point of the original design of the game. That one of the first things I played in VR was Elite Dangerous, and you're in a big spaceship flying around, and it feels absolutely right because you're not supposed to be moving, the ship is moving. So the idea was, how do we do that in a building or a cave, or how do you travel without walking? So that's where we came up with the idea with the pod, so you're in it, so it feels correct. 
it doesn't feel like you're displaced, like my legs aren't moving, or nope, I'm just moving in this pod like a car. So that was a big part of the design. Okay. Yeah. That was cool to be able to talk to him about all that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. The technical stuff on VR and... It's such a new world, really, for a lot of people. And the fact that they're so gung-ho into this is really cool. They clearly love this title, and it's just a lot of fun. You were talking with the the program manager, and and you were also talking with the president and the CEO. And CEO, he was right there. And the guy's just like, oh, yeah, let me bring him over here. What? (laughs) What? I, I love the way they were like, well, that's not my kind of question, but the other guy knows about that, so they were kind of uh, almost like tag-teaming each other to, to answer yeah. the questions. But again, just the fact that there's the president and CEO of the company, the guy who came up with the whole idea for the game. Yeah. yeah. Right there. Yeah. Willing to talk to me. No attempts to try to, well, you know, i, I got to go over here, so, you know, we'll, we'll talk later or whatever. Just like, yeah, hey, this is great. Let's talk. So I had a chance to basically talk to all three of them, because Ryder Wyndham was there at the same time. It's the whole story about how all of this, this whole collaboration came together. Okay, so I'm here with Ryder Wyndham, who is a New York Times bestselling author. You've written, you've written a bunch of Star Wars books. How many? I stopped counting after 50. Uh, 50 Star Wars books. Oh, uh, and, uh, it's, uh, um, and to be fair, some of them are quite small. But there, yeah. There's a, if you look on there's a Wikipedia page yes. that, that if you look at that, if you start counting off, it's like yeah, you'll find I've written over 50 Star Wars titles. Wow, that that's amazing. So you were brought on to do the prequel for Scraper. Yes. And how did that all come about? That came about uh, uh, Jim Ivan. Uh, actually, it was like uh, uh, like a mutual contact. So, someone got through through LinkedIn wrote to me saying, I, um, I read your profile, I, I think you should talk with Jim Ivan, he's working on something. So uh, Jim and I connected initially by email, and uh, he said that he had a story bible and a timeline and character guides, and was thinking he might bring in a writer to polish some of these things or to do more work later in the year, and I asked, could I see this material? All I knew from the website was it's a first-person shooter uh, in this science fiction environment. With the, and also, I'm a bit of a mercenary, and I said, uh, so, like, uh, Jim, why don't you commission me to write a novel that helps promote your game? Well, when would that story take place? I don't know. We, so we, we talked more, and Jim turned out to be uh, the most collaborative what a uh, licensor I mean it's like he's created this intellectual property he was very involved from the get-go I, uh, all, the, all the stuff that I do say for Lucasfilm or for uh, Hasbro properties I've done uh, 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 Transformers. Transformers or Lego Bionicle for, uh, for uh, I've done all these other things and for the most part it's like you know I, uh, they tell me what they want I submit an outline they give me their feedback I get to work. With Jim, it was, and I'm not exaggerating, the contact was almost, it was daily. You know, like I'd send him something, like, what do you think of that? Gee, I don't know. Like, do you think he'd really say that? Well, why do you think he wouldn't say that? When, and so he created these characters. I was trying to figure them out. And so, and he was only, only supportive through that. So it was a, a, a fun and even thrilling collaboration. I mean, just like, who knows where this is going to go? And 
after we settled out the initial outline, I started working on it in July of last year. And we were still working on corrections on the text right up until the book went to press. But I'd say the bulk of it was uh, like maybe finished by January, I think, or like December, January. Yeah. And and no matter how many times we read it, this is the final. Oops, the word the appears twice, or ah, there's one. You know, so those minor corrections. Yeah. But it was pretty much done by the end of uh, December, I think. Well, where where it was got, I mean, the, the initial part was it was interesting because I I said uh, I think it would be good if, like we start the story here because I it's like it, 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 initially we were thinking the story might begin maybe a few months before the game. So I did this one opening bit, and Jim read it, and he said, I don't know, it seems kind of a little slow. What about having more of an action-oriented thing? Some writers might bristle. It's like, well, no, this is how I... You know, it's like, I'm not that kind of an ego. I'm like, I want to please the client. And I said, actually, you know, thinking about it, I said, you're right. So I did a more action-oriented opening, and, and Jim read it, and he said, I don't know, maybe we need to go back more to, like, explain. So, the, so and running with that idea that the book now begins about a year before the events of the game but and so it takes place over the course of one year in the lives of these characters and in the events that lead up to the game what's really cool is lcfr cypher this guy he's the main bad guy and he starts off as a good guy in the book working with the humans and everything so that's that when you read the book you'll see the whole first chapter is him assisting all the good guys in the game. Ryder did this masterful job of slowly transforming him by the end of the book. He's the bad guy. <laughs> nice. So is it the kind where basically where the book ends, the game begins? That's exactly yeah. right, and that was the story, and that that was kind of where uh, Ryder mentioned it. Because my initial thought was, you know, I wanted to create the IP, the world, flesh it out. When you were talking about competing with other games in the industry, that was part of it. Like, well, if we build this entire universe and it's detailed in the characters, it's only going to complement the game. And I initially thought, let's write about the game. And, you know, we'll develop it and go, you know, make it bigger and detailed and everything. And it was Ryder's suggestion that, well, what if we do before that? So it's more of a tie-in. And we were like, okay, so we'll end it right where you start off in the dropship the book ends where you're getting into the dropship heading oh, towards wow. the reactor building it's that tied in that, that really is it's right awesome. up to the minute yeah you can have your own series of books you got to it. accompany the game yeah and that's the hope and we we've talked about it seriously um but you know it's still in the distance but looking at a screenplay and sending it off to netflix or amazon and again creating these deep rich characters the story and it can go in so many different directions now, which is great. Right. So that is the ultimate hope, the multimedia aspect of, you know, maybe a graphic novel, comic series, the books, the novels by writer, the game. And then obviously the, the, the holy grail would be to get Netflix to pick it up, you know, something like that. That'd be, that'd right? be really nice. So if this takes off, I mean, what, el what else are you going to be doing? What are you thinking of doing? Just um... uh, well, We've got the, the multiple games planned, right? So the three-game arc is already planned. And this is just episode one out of five. So that will be years in the making before we get to the final game. Uh, we're already talking about the next novel. Does it happen after the game? Is it one of the characters from the game and their story? Or writer's suggestion, is it another city? You know, another scraper city where somebody's watching the news bulletin of the reactor building. And then they go into their own event with Humex and that city and what happens there and kind of breaking off. 
Fallout did that. You know, they, they had, well, this, this game is in Boston, this game is in the D.C. area, this game is in Las Vegas, and they don't really try to connect to each other. They're, all, they're their own little separate individual right. worlds. One of the questions I always get asked is, what was the inspiration, the games? I'm a huge RPG person, and the first answer I give is Fallout 4. That's one of them. Witcher 3, Skyrim. Yep. So that will happen over episodes, but the idea is in VR2, which doesn't exist, is to build in all the crafting and engineering and RPG elements and sophisticated missions so it feels much more like a Skyrim or a Fallout or, or Witcher 3. We are years from that, but that's the ultimate goal is to get to that level. When I mentioned earlier when I saw the initial materials and I saw Jim's timeline, what I could also see is that uh, and I appreciate is that he's a fanatic for research and speculation also so that when his timeline it start it started off with uh, sort of what scientific and technology uh, notes for no- 2017 and things that were coming like here here's what we know is going to happen next year based on what we have right now and that, I mean, the way he was projecting things, you read it and you think, huh, it's like, okay, the, 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 the idea for these, these mega cities that are, compl- I mean, just engineered from the get-go to house and feed millions of people, given population growth, given what, uh, the, you know, the, the footprint for farms or t- you know, how things are going to go, as I read it, I just—I mean, I was getting drawn right into it. It's like it's like I'm I'm believing in this world. Most of the information, it's not just—it's like oh, we're just making this up because it's fun. It's like no, we think this is maybe the way things could be going. So, so I mean, you, you wrote a lot of books for an existing environment, obviously Star Wars and so forth. Was it any different approaching it as a brand new IP where you're actually helping to build the foundation for this new storyline? Yes, absolutely. An obvious difference is if I write a story about Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader, I don't even have to write a description of who, what they look like or how, you know, maybe how old they are or something. But that, yeah, it's just sort of like this, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to, to describe, you know, just, you know who it is. With these characters just having no idea, like, who are they? But it's also, as I told Jim, I said, it's not just about letting people know who these characters are. It's making them care about the characters. When we started off, we talked about doing a, a relatively short novel. It started off, we saying like, maybe about more like a novella, like maybe 50,000 words. And I can't remember just at what point it was, but just realizing, like, Jim, Jim would say, like, so how long is it going to be now? It's like, I, it was like maybe maybe 65, maybe, it's like, it's, it's over 70,000 words, and it just it kept growing. Cool yeah. about that was, you know, writer, you know, beforehand, we didn't know each other real well, of course, and do all the negotiating and business, and I, I can do X many words for X and all of that. And it was Ryder saying, you know, I'm going to need more, you know, I'm, I need more pages to get this guy developed, or, oh, this, I got to develop this story. So, of course, I was happy when he wanted to make it bigger and longer, but he was into it just as much, which was awesome. You know, he wanted to make it good and developed, and there's so many parts in the book where I feel like, you know, I, I had the story, the idea, but more like an encyclopedia. You know, all the characters, this is Commander Winston, this is what he is like, you know, more like a biography. And the art was where he did, he took that and turned it into like living, breathing characters you actually care about. There are parts in the book 
And there are certain parts when everybody reads it says, oh my God, did you get to that point? And you realize there are robots involved and you're, you're feeling for them and you're like, wait a minute, why am I getting, you know, he did such an incredible job of that. So I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's, you know, he brought everything to life and just elevated everything to a whole different level than I expected. Incredible. You right. know? Encyclopedia have a tendency of just being dry historical points. Right. And so that's where you added more of the life to it. Right. Well, because I, 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 I mean, I've, I've worked on, uh, I mean, for, for Star Wars books, I've done information uh, guides uh, or visual guides have written uh, technical manuals so that I mean that, that's you know, sort of writing is a completely different creature uh, but but to do something where you figure yeah I want I want readers to be make them emotionally invested in the story so uh, so what Jim told me he said oh you know I, I, I let somebody read it and, and like he started crying at this part and not like out of like because he was really sad and I was like that's that's a good sign, I think. You know, I'm not, I made him feel good. I made somebody cry. You know, <laughs> I'm kidding. Right? <laughs> or laugh. You know, right. somebody cracked up when they read that part. That's good too. Yeah. Okay. So if people want to find out more about the game, where do they go? Uh, I would go to scrapernetwork.com, which is just s c r a p e r network.com. Okay. And if people want to find out more about your books. Oh, they should go to Amazon.com and they should buy Scraper. Uh, the novel. That's 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 what they should do. And if they if they if they look around elsewhere, but that that would be the first place they should start. If they Google Ryder Wyndham, there'll be hundreds of pages on it. They can go anywhere they want. So sounds good. <laughs> Thank you both for your time. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. And good luck with the game. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. That was awesome. <laughs> I had so much fun, and I didn't even really need to ask anything. <laughs> those guys kept bouncing off I, each I other. I love those kind of interviews. <laughs> oh, yeah, they wanted to tell us all this stuff. Uh, that's fine by me. I'm looking forward to that game. It's starting to make it difficult as to what to do. The problem with VR is it's still not cheap. You know, PlayStation VR still starts at, I think, $299 or $399, which mm-hmm. is fine, but unless you have the higher-powered PlayStation, the, the Pro version, you might get some stuttering issues, which of course is really bad for VR. But still, I've just heard a lot of people saying, yeah, if you're going to do VR, you probably want the Pro version. Uh, you obviously want the Pro version if you've got a 4K TV, but I don't. I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. But yeah. then Steam, that's where I play all my games, is on my PC. And my PC is absolutely VR ready. But then the only one that I'd really want is the Vive, and that starts at around 500 bucks. Oh, yeah. I'm like, come on, really? Once the hardware finally comes down to a reasonable price, I think that's when VR really is going to have its chance. It's still going to be niche. It's like I say on, on my widescreen podcast, I love 3D. I won't necessarily gain anything by a 3D version of Driving Miss Daisy. You know, there's, <laughs> there's just some games that you don't need to play in VR. <laughs> <laughs> But it's always going to be a niche to a degree, and there are always going to be people who are negatively affected by it. But until the cost comes down, it's going to be such a niche. So the fact that they're taking such a risk on it shows how much they're putting into it. And then you know, bringing Ryder in to come up and develop this prequel story was just, that's mind-blowing. I really, really hope this does well, because the fact that they're creating this whole world is really promising. And I love the way it was like, so how can we find more information about your books? <laughs> Go to and Amazon. Like, just, just Google his name and find out, which is exactly what I did. And I found a list of everything he's written. Oh, man. <laughs> 
So uh, yeah, it was really cool to be able to talk. And they were just so open and welcoming. It's great interview. I absolutely loved it. Now, here's the big one. He and I were talking on Friday before I was recording. And one of the things that we talked about was, as I've mentioned already, I love games that have a storyline to them. Even games that don't have a great gameplay. If they have a cool art design, if they have a cool story, I can generally overlook the gameplay design. People who were sick and tired of jumping off of buildings in the earlier Assassin's Creeds know exactly what I'm talking about. And I love good stories, and I mentioned Assassin's Creed. And he said, oh, well, actually, you know what? I was going to be writing an Assassin's Creed book. I was like, oh, really? And it turns out he was going to be writing a version for Scholastic, which is like the educational kids version. Do you have Scholastic over there? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, they deal mostly with school-age kids, you know, high Mm -hmm. school, grade school, that sort of thing. And he said, yeah, I was actually going to write a version for Scholastic regarding the movie that came out a year or two ago. I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. He said, but like three days before it was supposed to go to the publisher, I got told that, oh, Scholastic actually doesn't have the rights to do that, so we're not going to be publishing it. But he said he's got the, not screenplay, but he's got his book on an old hard drive somewhere. We exchanged information, and he offered to send me that copy when he finds it. Oh, wow. Yes. I was like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. You know, I obviously can't review it because it's not a book or anything. But just the fact that he's like, oh, yeah, I'll send it to you. I was like, that's cool. The whole thing was that it was on an old PC that was having problems. So he might not be able to get it. And if he can't, that's fine. But just the fact that he was willing to offer to offering to send that to me, a total stranger who he met at a gaming convention. That's awesome. That made the interview so much nicer, you know, just, just to have that kind of personality. And he was just so willing to talk and, and, you know, and I guess also really relieved to have someone who was listening and, and genuinely interested in it. You know, just talking with those three was, I don't want to say it was better than playing the game, because it's obviously they're on totally different experiences. But when it comes to uh, the euphoria from it, yeah, they were both about the same. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what you're saying then is it was well worth taking the recorder with you. You did good. <laughs> <laughs> you did good in, in prying me to bring that. Well, after you've been let loose at uh, Cripping the Comic Con and you enjoyed dealing with the recording side of it there, and I thought, well, this is you in your home territory, in your... in yeah an environment that you are really comfortable with. And I thought, well, why not? (laughs) Yeah, you you did good on that one. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. I saw and played a lot of games that I didn't get interviews with, which was good. Otherwise, this would be like a 10-hour podcast. <laughs> One of those that I really was interested in, I wanted to go back to talk to the people, but I didn't get a chance, is called The Endless Mission. It's going to be on Steam Early Access in a few months. And it's more like a game portal. So, like, you go into this center location. From there, you can go off to play various other games. But then, things that you do in those games can affect how you level up your character, which then will go into effect with the other games that they have. 
So it's like they'll have a racing game, they'll have a platformer, they'll have a sports game. And and in some cases, you can build your own games. It actually looked really interesting, but just the thought that they're calling it the Endless Mission because they just want to keep throwing more and more and more and more content out there. And they said that it's pretty much going to be one fee and that's it. You buy the game and that's it. You don't have to buy any more. I like that idea. Wow. I love the idea, but wow, how is that sustainable? But it looked cool, and I, I really like the idea that they're doing it. So who knows what's going to happen with that. I guess we'll find out whenever it goes into early access. Lots of RPGs. There were an amazing amount of RPGs out there. One, <laughs> one is called Collective Justice Mission, where basically you are infiltrating a religious cult, trying to take them down from the inside in a town in uh, South America. But it changes every time you play it. I want to say it's kind of roguelike, but that one caught my eye. There's just for those who like the retro RPGs, another one called Feyland, F-A-E Land. They're going to be coming out. In fact, they've got their uh, Kickstarter going on right now. But just so many other games out there that th- there's just no way to talk to all of the developers. I mean, one of them, let me find the card for it, called Super Daryl Deluxe. Daryl is in the guy's name. Mm-hmm. It's a brawler, but it's really, really cartoony, and the guy is a stereotypical hippie out of the 70s. <laughs> you know, but I don't really care for brawlers, but it just stuff like that. It's th- There's another one that is a persistent world warfare game for those people who like that sort of thing. But an isometric view from above, but apparently everything you do in the game has an effect on everyone else in the game because it's this massive world where everybody's fighting each other. All right. Yeah, you know, stuff like that. The varying kinds of games that are there, that alone is worth going just to be able to look at it and see all of the different kinds of games, especially that the indie folks are coming up with. You know, not to say that there's nothing that the triple A's are worth seeing. And you know, the Final Fantasy one was always busy. I played the Divinity Original Sin 2 last year, and I was really impressed by that. So, I mean, there are definitely AAA stuff out there worth playing, although, like I said, for some reason this year there weren't a lot of AAA folks. A lot of indie, though. Don't know what that was all about, but yeah, it, it's a good time. Prepare to qualify. PAX is a good time. Uh, this podcast is not sponsored by the Penny Arcade Expo, by the way. Even if you're not so much into the games themselves, you know, they've, they've got a whole bunch of conferences. You can still talk and meet developers and or YouTube personalities that you might know. Anybody who plays Warframe and uh, knows the voice of the Lotus, who we call her our space mom. That's actually Rebecca Ford. She's like the bigwig community manager for Digital Extremes. She's always at the PAXs, and she knows me by name. She actually she sees me and is like, oh, hey, John, how's it going? She's a community manager for a game with 27 million people, and she knows me by name because she's seen me there so many times. <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, so you coming to TennoCon? It's like, I'll be there. It's like, great, I'll see you there. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff at PAX that just helps to make it awesome. And people that you've met from previous PAXs who you look forward to seeing every year. I must admit, I'm starting to get that now with some of the people I meet at the conventions. Mm-hmm. There's a group of us who are almost like family now, and uh, well, I, I do regard a lot of them as extended family. As, as you know, Phil the Force Day is like an extended family for yep. me. Well, Simon did actually say he's, I am part of the furniture now. <laughs> oh man all i got in my head now is consider yourself from oliver oh, thanks mark <laughs> it does give you a really good feeling when when you get to see these people again and again and 
you think to yourself, how many people did they see over the course of one of these conventions, mm-hmm. and they remember you? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it is about video games, but really is a lot more than that. For people who don't like crowds, I uh, might not want to go to one of these things. My wife could never go to this. I mean, not, not just from an interest level, but it is crowded, and she hates crowds. But, I mean, you could be in line waiting to play a game, and... You just start chatting with the person next to you because you're all there for the same reason. You know, if, if you're standing in the same line with other people, well, they're there because they want to play the same game you're playing. Or, you're the, or they want to play the same game that you want to play. Just start talking. You know, sure, you're going to have some introverts who just don't want to talk. You're going to get that anywhere. But for the most part, we're all there to have a good time. Let's just chat it up and off you go. There's one thing I wanted to say, actually, because when we were talking about Ryder Wyndham and I was mentioning about the Haynes manuals that he actually wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we, we love the space and aviation Haynes manuals on, on the podcast. Yeah. And especially when they respond to a tweet like they did to one of mine recently. Because <laughs> uh, they po- posted an infographic saying that Haynes manuals advise you when you need to change your wiper blades. And I replied to him saying that in my International Space Station manual, it doesn't include this information in it. (laughs) (laughs) To which they came back to me with, in space, no one can hear your wiper blade scream, or in this (laughs) case, squeak. (laughs) Nice. I do love Twitter for that. People that you never would think would respond to you do. Alan Stern just came out with a new book. Yeah, he has. And it was co-written. Uh, I don't have the book information in front of me. I, it, it's on order. But his co-author mentioned about it, and he forwarded it. And they're going on this big book tour. So they're going to be in Washington, D.C. if they haven't been already. And they're, just, they're touring the country. And I actually responded to his partner saying, is the autographed version going to be made available to people to purchase who can't make it onto the book tour? Alan Stern himself responded and said, yes, they will be available. Here's where you can buy them. My jaw dropped. Totally dropped. It's like, the guy who is in charge of the whole New Horizons program just acknowledged me. This is so cool. (laughs) And I might have ordered one of those autographed copies. I'm a little little worried because he said that if you buy it from this bookstore, Boulder Bookstore out in Boulder, Colorado, those will be autographed. But it didn't say anything on the website about it being autographed. I'd read it anyway. But mm-hmm. if I could get it autographed from both him and his co-author, that would be even better. That Scraper book, the prequel for the game, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, I bought that. It was only 10 bucks. That surprised me, too. And, uh, yeah, so I got that autographed by Ryder Wyndham. Cool. Yeah. I've got a couple of books here that I want to get signed at some point. I've got uh, Chris Hadfield's... <laughs> Nice. biography and Mike Massimino. Good luck with that. Uh, good luck with that one as well. Mike Massimino is a difficult guy to tie down, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but I got them, I've read them, and yeah, if the opportunity arises, then uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I have not had a chance to read Scraper. And the, whole, the full title is Scraper, The Rise of Cypher, because Cypher being the bad guy in the game. But I think I might actually hold on that one until... I actually get a chance to, you know, buy the game. I'm going to go VR some point, sooner or later. So at that point is probably when I'll buy this, and then I'll start to read the book before I start playing the game. Then again, I might just say, you know what? It's not all that long, so screw it. I'm going to read it anyway. (laughs) So yeah, it was a good time. It was absolutely a good time. Awesome. Now, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking to our resident astronomer, Ross Hockham. 
Have you ever wanted to get far, far away from it all? To a planet where no one will ever find you? Well, that place is closer than you think. Welcome to Earth's Wild Atlantic Way in Ireland. A welcoming pre-hyperdrive society. Friendly indigenous wildlife. And more than a few fun activities to train your apprentice. Earth's Wild Atlantic Way. Shooting location of Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Escape the dark side along Earth's wild Atlantic way. It's the perfect place to get away from it all. Welcome back to TGP Nominal for our monthly look of what's going on up in the skies with our resident astronomer from UK Astronomy, Ross Hockham. How you doing, sir? Good, mate. It's me again. I'm here. guess you've been wanting to know what's going on then. Yeah, yeah. Is it busy this month or is it a standard month? Uh, yeah, there's some bits going on. I know I spoke about Jupiter before and some of its moons and stuff, but this month is uh, it's all about Jupiter mainly because I'll, I'll let you know why in a bit. But yeah, it's going to be about the king of the planets. But before we get to Jupiter, let's not forget the other planets because they're still up. They're still about. You've got uh, Saturn and Mars. They're all around in the morning. They're around all month in the morning sky. Saturn is coming up to its own sort of opposition next month. So it will be best of you next month. So you can probably guess what my objects will be for June. <laughs> so Saturn will be a good one, and lots of people want to see the rings. That I've had people in the group saying, "Oh, I just want to see Saturn's rings." So next month, have a listen, and that will be the one. Yeah. So if you keep an eye on them in the morning, you should be able to see Saturn's rings with binoculars, ten by fifties, twenty by eighties, even better. But you'll need a tripod because they're really heavy. Uh, Mars at the moment probably won't see too much, but I'll go on to that because uh, me and Mick went out a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm going to talk about our night and what we saw. <laughs> to help you guys out uh, yeah so it's a great time to have a look at those two and if you've done a bit of astrophotography the moon will be with them as well so you can just pop your DLSR camera down or any camera phone iPhone take a picture you could get all three right there up in the sky also there is another meteor shower slightly more than the last one it is about 20 now an and it's called the uh, the Eta Aquarid I say Aquarid it's probably wrong but I like that or Eta uh, and what's happening is, again, as the Earth is moving into the tail from the debris of a comet, you're going to get this little meteor shower, about 20 an hour. The great thing about this one is it's actually from Halley's Comet itself. The comet that everyone talks about is known as the, uh, the doom bringer from history, especially around 1066, where apparently it was seen in the sky by Harold, who was, happened to be crowned that year as well, what I've read. And he was uh, crowned that year, saw the comet in the sky, and it was in the Bayer Tapestry, which is kind of like the uh, history of those days, almost like a historical record. And they saw it as an evil omen. So that's why it's a doom bringer. And funnily enough, for England, we uh, lost the Battle of Hastings not soon <laughs> after. And uh, the Normans beat us. So in a way, it kind of was a doom bringer. But maybe the people saw it and the king actually got so dismayed that he knew it was coming and he brought it upon himself. <laughs> Who knows? Luckily for us as a scientist and astronomers now, we know that it's actually just a lump of volatile compounds. So those with sort of low boiling points such as water, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide and ices and things like that. It's just a lump of that flying through space. And as it gets closer to the sun, it starts to melt and leave a trail. That's it. <laughs> so it's not going to kill anyone. It's not going to hurt anyone. It's not going to doom bring. 
Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to see the actual comet itself until 2061 again. I think it came in the 80s, didn't it? Was it 80, 86, I think? Uh, I yeah, it was 86, yeah. So I don't remember that one. Do I remember the other one? Where was it? It was Hal, Hal Bob, was it? Or Halle Bob? Halle Bob, yeah. I remember that one, just about, probably not the name. <laughs> but I remember my dad pointing it out to me, and that was cool to see in the sky. And I just wish something, you know, I wish, hope I lived to 2061, just to see that again. I'm going to have to go in the gym or something and start getting myself fitter. <laughs> yeah, so that little meteor shower that you can see, and when you see something burn up, it's actually part of Halley's Comet, which is pretty cool. The only problem is the moon is in the way. You should see a few coming through, hopefully. The only thing as well with it is it's more of a dawn meteor shower because it's actually rising just in front of the sun. So it's Aquarius, which is why it's Acrids. See, it's Aquarius, so it should be Aquarids, maybe. Actually, I've got something to, to play in oh, when you've done your, your piece because um, we, we mentioned something last month and uh, you actually pronounced it right. So, yeah, we'll, oh. we'll, come, back to, we'll come back to you on that in, in a little while. But, yeah. Doesn't happen often, does it? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the beauty of it. As I said, I'm an amateur astronomer. I don't get everything right, but I love to learn. So, yeah, this is a bit of homework for you as well. I do it for you, Mark, so that you go away and, you know, learn and figure these things out <laughs> so i don't have to yeah so you're really going to want to look at it kind of like maybe an hour or so before the sun rises so it might be hard to see but you never know you might start to see a bit of halley's comet flying around now it's definitely jupiter time why because it's at opposition so jupiter's at opposition this month saturn should be at opposition next month so what we're doing is we're kind of flying up to jupiter not really that close because we're about 408 million miles from it Sounds far, but apparently it's close enough to see a lot more of its features. So that's why it's that opposition, because we're kind of close to it in our orbit. Then we're going to go past it and then start to get towards Saturn the next month. So then it will be at opposition. And then Mars. So as we're going around, we're going to kind of get a good view of all three of these, hopefully. So yeah, what will you be able to see? So with the naked eye, pretty much just going to see like a big, bright white blob in the sky. But if you grab a pair of binoculars, 10 by 50 is usually the best because, I mean, you can get them quite cheap. I think Lidl did a, under group, someone got one from Lidl for like £15. It's a good price, isn't it, that? Yeah, it's pretty good. For that. And he said, uh, I think another lady got them as well, and they said they were fine. They said they got some good detail on the moon. They could see the four little moons of Jupiter. So there you go. You don't have to get a really expensive pair. But obviously, the more expensive you get, the better sort of lenses you're going to have in it, and it'll be better. But go for it. Why not? So, yeah, 10 by 50s, probably best. And if you've got a steady hand or lean against the wall, or if you've got a reclining chair, that's even better because you put your hands on the uh, your elbows, sorry, on the armrests. To be fair, that's the best thing to do. If you can get a reclining chair or something like that. And you should just be able to make out, it's sort of slightly, slightly darker lines on it. You should just make them out. They should be very, very slightly browner or darker. It will be quite small, but you will easily be able to see its four main moons as well. I know because I, I tried it out the other day. It was some 10 by 50s. And yep, you can see it fine. Not a problem. If you've got a telescope, then uh, get it out and have a look, man. What's wrong with you? Jupiter's there. It's ready for you. <laughs> if you've got a sort of three, four-inch scope, you should be able to make out the lines slightly thicker on it. So that's actually its equatorial belts. And then uh, if you're really lucky and you're out there at the right time, you should also be able to see a little red spot. It's kind of more of a brownie color at this sort of distance. And that should be on show. And you can have a look at that. So you can see that absolutely fine with just a small scope. If you go a little bit bigger, 8 to 10 inches, which uh, I've got a 10-inch one. That's what I first bought. I started with like a little 3-inch one. It went straight to the 10-inch. So you can see these things. And that will show you a lot more finer details because you're looking more and more lights being let in and stuff like that. 
you might even have to put a, uh, a filter on it to dim it down a bit I have to do that sometimes like a moon filter and yeah you'll see it really well and it'll be a larger target to look at and that's kind of like probably your top end where you're you know going to afford to look Jupiter's spot it does actually have other spots that come and go but none really measure up to, you know, its great red one, apparently. Not that we've seen through our history uh, since the telescope was uh, first. It was Galileo, wasn't it, that first looked? Yeah. I think so. Well, well, recorded. <laughs> Someone else might have invented one that no one knew about. But yeah, it's been around for about 350 years, roughly. And it did used to be a really bright sort of brick red. But over the years, it has like slightly dimmed more and dimmed more. And I'm sure I've said it before that it's actually shrinking and they're saying that it's actually shrinking quite drastically in like, you know, the more recent years. It's it's really going for it for some reason. So it's almost like the storm's kind of dissipating and maybe not bringing up all that red from the surface and stuff. So got to get out there and see it. Got to get out there and see the red spot. Uh, although Jupiter's quite low in the sky, it is probably best viewed after midnight. But as I said, you can see it pretty well because, uh, as I said, myself and uh, Mr. Mick, I've spoken about Mick before, haven't I? Yeah, many People times. People know Mr. Mick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's my right-hand man. He's sort of like the astrophotographer side. And a lovely bloke, very good builder. <laughs> He's going to build our mobile observatory for us, hopefully, when we get the rest of the funds for it. He loves it. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he loves it. Bless him. Yeah, we got a little bit overexcited uh, last month or a couple of weeks ago, and we decided it was a clear night. We're both free. We're going to go for it. We're going to go out. And we went to Dunstable Downs, which isn't far from Milton Keynes, which is where UK Astronomy is based, because I live there. We had a fantastic night view, and it was really good. It was ridiculous, because we were out from 8pm until 5am. Okay. That's probably like the longest night of actual visual astronomy I've ever done. <laughs> I've been out from sort of maybe nine, ten o'clock to about two or three at the latest, but eight till five. It was ridiculous. But the reason we were was because, one, we hadn't been out for ages because the weather's been terrible. But two, we got to see all these cool things. Everything seemed to start coming like after an hour of each other. So we, while we were setting up, we uh, watched the sunset down Dunstable Downs. It was like a, a hill. And it's, it's facing west, so the sun was setting there. Saw that set, really cool sunset, brilliant. And then as it went down, we then saw Venus popping up. So we had a good view at Venus. Crescent moon wasn't far from it either. So we saw Venus, I think it's about maybe 88% lit. So it's got like a slight, it's not a proper circle. It's got a slight bit off of it darker so it actually looks like a bit more of a planet sort of 3d and yeah the crescent moon then slowly went down and as it went down it had a really good bit of earth shine on it and that's where i think i spoke about before the sun reflects from earth onto the sort of like the dark side of the moon mm -hmm. and it but it was really brightly lit i actually took pictures and put it in the group you could see the other side you know the dark where the shadow was you could see all the features on it still wow it's crazy then as it went down it turned a really really deep sort of blood red as it set and usually that kind of thing means that it's kind of slipping into sort of the earth's shadow from what i'd imagine it was fantastic as it went down but we think it was more the atmosphere it was quite a warm day yeah and the atmosphere and all the carbon and stuff it splits all you know it didn't change the color itself it's just the light coming to us but mm -hmm. yeah it looked amazing as it went down and then just as that went down jupiter then popped up so this is kind of like what would be happening this month. Not really a lot has changed in times. So you've still got Venus there at the moment. That will set. The moon goes all over the place, as you could probably see. And then Jupiter starts popping up afterwards, probably around midnight. Midnight's best time to have a real good look at it. And yeah, it was up. And I viewed it with my 70 ED travel scope, which I think is about five or six, seven inches, something like that. It's a great little scope. It was a gift from my wife. Uh, she bought it from Trig Astronomy Centre, funnily enough. They helped her out and... Uh, 
because she hasn't got a clue about scope. So she said, look, my husband's on a motorbike. He doesn't get to take his 10 inch <laughs> scope with him anywhere. What can I get him that he can put on there so that then I can just, you know, take it with my motorbike places because I don't have a car. She has a car and they got that for her. And it's, it's fantastic little refractor because it's a refractor. It's got a really good lens in it and you get such a crisp view. It's actually amazing. I couldn't believe through my 10 inch and through that, although it's smaller, you actually get a better view of what's, you know, what, what you're looking at. So to look at Jupiter through that, really really cool you could see all the details on it you could see the moon so you can see it if you can see it last month you're definitely going to be able to see it like this month and as i said we took the 16 inch dobsonium which is a huge ridiculous thing made really for deep space objects and through that you could see a lot more of its details but bigger yes but it was slightly more blurry because it's a mirror rather than a lens right so and because Jupiter was quite low in the sky there's a lot of you know haze sort of there so it definitely shows between the two that refractors are better for looking at planets whereas when I put the 16 up and looked at galaxies and stuff there was tons more so yeah we looked at that and then just as Jupiter was up Saturn followed so we then had Saturn so every time we thought oh we're almost done now oh look there's a new planet let's stay for another hour <laughs> so yeah Saturn popped up again still quite low because it was just rising but you can make out its rings you can see the moon Titan with both of the scopes you could see all of that so that's definitely coming up for this month you can easily see that in the morning and then Mars started popping up as well about half an hour after Saturn I think it's about half past two three o'clock be around that time they start coming up although you couldn't really see any details on it because it was very low and hazy in the next few months as i said we're going to be getting closer and closer to it and it will slowly get higher hopefully and you should get a really really good view of it and then from that i then decided right let's go for some galaxies so i got the 16 inch up saw the whirlpool galaxy which is kind of one galaxy that's interacting with another one so it's being all the gravity from one is you know pulling it from another one and it's kind of mixing together which is quite cool to see yeah and uh they're near the plow so if you go to the plow and you look up the Whirlpool Galaxy, there's also the Bode's Nebula, which is actually a galaxy, and the Cigar, which are the first two I ever saw. And uh, they look really good because they're quite high in the sky. For this month, definitely see if you can go around the plow and just look at the few galaxies that are around there. And uh, funnily enough, I found that there was actually another galaxy by Bode's and Cigar. So it actually almost makes it like the Leo triplet. Right. There's three galaxies there that you can see. And there is another quite faint one there that I didn't know was there. So I found a new galaxy that I hadn't seen. So for us, it was a great night. And that's kind of like, I just wanted to say that in there because that's what, you know, if you were out for a night doing astronomy, we were going to come out with us or see stuff. That's the kind of night at the moment for the next few months that you can have because those planets are up and you can see them and depending what time you know you're up and wanting to look at them you can see all those things in one night so it's pretty amazing although i would recommend always go with someone because <laughs> while we were up there there were loads of cars coming and going till about 3 a.m and i was thinking hang on a minute this is on a weekday it's ruining our night vision w what's going on and let's just say after reading up on what goes on up there sometimes <laughs> i was very glad that mick was with me because he's a big lad and scared him off <laughs> so yeah they say never do astronomy on your own <laughs> and that's why uh yeah anyway back to jupiter unfortunately it's not at its best until 2023 so we've got a few years yet until we get really close and it gets nice and high and that's when it's, it's best for us to see but what the hell man it's right there it's at opposition 
why not go out and have a look let us know on our facebook page we love having pictures there of anything everyone see i mean a few weeks ago uh, before this podcast the moon was really close to jupiter and i posted it loads of people went out and said oh wow it's the first time i've ever seen it i saw the moons i saw this i took a picture of my phone it's a facebook group everyone gets together and chats on there and shows each other's pictures it's really good for like the communities so yeah get involved right on to the month ahead then that's enough about my exciting night there are loads of moon transits on jupiter i'm not going to go through them all because there's quite a lot and it'll just be like you know this is doing this at this time that's doing that at this time this time that time be a bit boring so if you pop out on perhaps the 14th you may well see a moon transiting the planet as well as its shadow there's quite a lot and i'm guessing it's because it's our position to where it is with the sun and opposition there's quite a few going on so it's a great month to go and have a look at jupiter because you might see its moons as well in the shadows now, on to the 15th of the month. Saturn will be just above a globular cluster called M22. It's in the constellation of Sagittarius, and it's one of the brightest. And it's not too far away from the huge galactic bulge that is also our galaxy centre. So it doesn't really rise very high for us to see it. If you're in Australia, you can see it really well. One day I hope to go there. But you are kind of almost looking into the galactic bulge when you're looking at this cluster. So it's definitely worth having a look at that. The next day, the 16th, they know what time it is, Mark. It's deep space time. So the 16th, there's no moon. It's out of the way. Take a look, a look at the Dumbbell Nebula. It's between Sagittarius and, oh, I hate this one. I'm going to go for Volpecula. It's probably completely different. But they're two very small constellations, almost kind of like two lines. One of them is actually just two stars with a line in between. Uh, and it's very much like the Ring Nebula, the Dumbbell. We spoke about it in a previous podcast, didn't we, the Ring yeah, Nebula? Yeah, we did. And that is a dying star and all the gas is being thrown out. It's in uh, that, that one's in the constellation Lyra, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or Lyra. Uh, but with the Dumbbell Nebula in between these two, we're actually seeing it from sideways on as opposed to almost straight on. So it actually looks more like a dumbbell. So the star's in the middle and it's kind of like the gases are expanding out sideways from either side. So it's really good to look at that area. Also, because a little bit earlier in the month, there is a faint comet that's passing through it from about the 10th to the 11th. But from what I believe, it's passing through for most of the month. So if you have a look there, you may see the Dumbbell Nebula and there may be another fuzz there, which will turn out to be this actual comet. Good for astrophotographers. If you take a picture of that area, you can bring it out and you might go, ah, there it is. I brought it out in my picture. It's really good. It's meant to brighten as the year goes on. So it should get better. So I'll probably might talk about that, you know, later podcasts as it does a bit more, but it's, it's kind of dim. Now, the 17th, which is the next day, so if you fancy three nights out, I'm sure the wife will approve, or husband, depending. <laughs> There's the thin crescent moon. It's not far from Venus. So, as I said with me and Mick, when we had our night out, you can watch the sunset, then Venus, and then the moon. So it'd be quite near to it. It is kind of, Venus itself is slowly moving in and towards coming sort of in front of the sun over the next few months, but it's still shining really brightly in the afternoon sky. So you can watch them all setting together. Why not, you know, take your partner out to Dunstable Downs and, you know, look over the hill and watch it all set together. It's very romantic, but don't stay too late because it gets a little bit weird. On the 20th, there is a near half moon, not too far from a thing called the Beehive Cluster. I think we spoke about this as well yeah, before. We definitely spoke about Beehive yeah, Cluster, yeah. Cool, they should know this well then. And yeah, it's almost, uh, the Beehive Cluster is almost dead centre of the constellation Cancer the Crab. Uh, it's an open cluster full of loads of different coloured stars. So if you've got some binoculars, have a look at that as well. And the moon's not far from it, so hopefully you should be able to see both there. It shouldn't blot it out too much. On the 21st, so again, the next day after that one, 
It marks the start of Noctilus and cloud spotting. So although the moon is in the way at the moment, at this date, it will be carrying on, you know, for a few months afterwards. So if you have a look about an hour and a half after sunset or an hour and a half before sunrise, you might be able to see these sort of rare clouds that are kind of electric blue wispy structures. And we spoke about this before as well, didn't we? Yeah. It's great. So I don't need to see. Now people are going to have to go back and listen to previous podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, they're made up, it's made up apparently from kind of burnt up meteors. So all the gas and stuff has gone into all like ice crystals in the upper atmosphere. So yeah, when the sun kind of goes down and shines up onto the bottom of it, it all shows them up. And they're quite cool to see, although you have to be up either early or uh, out after the sun's gone down. Or oh, what have we got next? The 27th. And this is the last but not least, you'll be pleased to know. So if you've not spied Jupiter yet, what's wrong with you, man? You should have been out there the whole month looking. <laughs> but... It will be close to the moon on this night. So it's your last chance to get it and have a good old look at it and the moon. So thank you very much. I will pop, as always, a visual guide. I'm going to do it on Jupiter. So I have a big picture of Jupiter with maybe some things about its moons and, you know, what objects you can see actually on it and whether you can spot them. It'll be on the website, www.ukastronomy.org. It'll be under events and then objects of the month, which is where also you're probably already listening to this podcast, but <laughs> there will be a link to the podcast as well. And hopefully there'll be previous ones for you. So hopefully, Mark, we're going to have some clear skies this month, which will be nice. Yeah. And then we can see Jupiter. Awesome. Now, one thing I will say is also check out the show notes on the TGP nominal website because a lot more of the stuff that Ross has mentioned over the, the last few podcasts actually feature on there and there's a lot to see because there's links to different things that he may have mentioned if, if he mentions um, for example different scientists that discovered different planets and, and uh, things that are going on in the sky there's usually a link to that person so you can do a little bit of research into what Ross has been talking about yeah so it kind of makes listening back to the podcast not pointless because although the events have happened a lot of the stuff we talk about like the ring nebula and things like that are still there mm -hmm. so there's there's actually you know we had to talk about other stuff and you put all the notes there for me bless you with loads of pictures as well so you can kind of make my job <laughs> a lot easier <laughs> So it's all there for people to read and learn from. And then when we talk about it in later bits, they can go, oh, I wonder what the ring nebula is. I'll go back and have a look. Oh, yeah, there it is. That's a description. And so it's all there for you to almost go back and have a look at. And one thing that we've been discussing that we're, we're going to try and make possible as much as possible, yeah, possible as much as possible, yeah. Um, <laughs> it works. <laughs> is that there's certain things that you're going to see in the sky that some of the UK Astronomy Facebook group members may have actually captured themselves. So we might also include a photograph from one of the Facebook group members actually on the show notes, which illustrates what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I love using, as I said, when I do talks, I try my best to ask the people in the group if I can use their photos and put their name on it because, you know, that's what you're going to see. That's what you can get because... That person has gone out, bought a telescope, used their phone or a camera and got that image. So it means you can go and get that image. There's nothing stopping you. So if they can do it, you can do it. And you can see the pictures they've done and think, wow, that's really good. I really like that. I might get into this. And then we can help you as much as we can, steer you in the right direction to places to go and buy a good scope or get good information or learn a workshop. We've got all stuff like that all on the website and things. So yeah, if you need help, that's what we're here for. If you want to get into it, you want to see the pictures, you want to get the pictures, you want to see anything come and have a chat with us mm -hmm, definitely now i mentioned earlier that i wanted to play something in uh, about something we weren't sure how to pronounce and i what, got it right what, what you actually 
did you got right yeah definitely and um basically what it was as you know i like watching the, the rocket launches and there was a, a rocket launch that took place not too long ago it was the launch of a satellite actually for the european space agency and it was called the sentinel 3b satellite and they have a bit of a commentary it's not just a launch they they teach you things as well whilst you're listening to the the rocket launch and this was actually on the european space agency's commentary and i thought i'd play this in so we've gone above uh, what's often known as the carmen line which is effectively the border with space it's um about 100 kilometers above sea level 62 miles what does that actually mean nick so at this point, um, the air is so thin that the force required to fly in an, uh, an, an aeronautical regime, so like an aeroplane does, is more than actually a rocket needs to fly um, in a, an astronautics domain. So this is really the uh, rocket science that uh, needs to keep us there, and it's the, the boundary between aeronautic ending and astronautic beginning. It was identified by a Hungarian-American aerospace engineer called Theodor von Kármán, and he was born in 1881. And there you go. So ah. the Kármán line, you did get it right. Yeah, <laughs> I learned something new there as well, because I didn't know about the guy, it was a guy's name. Yeah. Yeah, most so of them are. That's good. Put a piece in the show notes about him, uh, so you can find out a bit more about him and his discoveries. But yeah, um, I think that was a great way of dis- just describing what the Kármán line is, where aeronautics finish and astronautics start. Yeah. I like that. Space begins. <laughs> <laughs> Although, from when we were talking about it in the last podcast, it actually, our atmosphere carries on and on and on and on for quite a way after that, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's just to do with the air density, isn't it? And where planes can fly by the sounds of it, as opposed to yeah. floating. <laughs> yeah, because planes would not work after that point. It would be, no. It wouldn't, it, I wonder what would happen. Like, if you, so if you're flying up to that point and you, you, know, you, don't, you don't do it so you stall, do you reckon when you get to that point, the plane will just kind of like just drop and then be all right and then go up to that point and just drop because it loses it or I'm not stalling. 100% sure how the engines would actually work at that point. It's, yeah. not, it's not the right kind of uh, no, technology. Do you reckon they just kind of like cut out and die and then... You'd have to kind of... <laughs> just, just float for a bit, yeah. Yeah, float and dive it to start them up again. Yeah, bit of a dangerous manoeuvre, but uh, it could probably be done. Yeah. Well, Virgin are doing it, aren't they? They're kind of flying up. Are they going yeah. over that point? They, they, they're they going just to that point, so it, yeah. they will be floating, so it will be... Technically just, there. Just at that point, yeah. Awesome. If they don't blow up, which is what they've done so far. They have... Well, they've, <laughs> they've, they've blown up once. So, I mean, they, yeah. they've made other flights before... Um, but right. they are on the, they are on the brink of um, the next stage on that now. So uh, be interesting to see how far they can take it. Definitely, yeah. They've been quite quiet, haven't they? It's all been about Elon Musk and SpaceX. And um, after I don't, I don't the, really hear much about Virgin. After the crash, they had to do a lot of rethinking and stuff, uh, yeah. which is always what happens when some. Unfortunately, somebody actually died in yeah. that crash. So when there's human fatalities, you have to do a lot of rethinking about things. So it did put them behind a little bit so they have been working on it it's just not been in the foreground yeah they've just gone a bit quiet to sort it all out and make sure everything's now they're back to a stage where they can can go forward so it'll be interesting to see what Convergent Galactic come up with next yeah it'd be good right Ross once again 
thanks for coming on board. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's always great to listen to what you have to say and always great to try and do the little bit of the research that I do to put into the notes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you uh, thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? <laughs> it's good fun, actually. It's good fun. Helping everyone to learn, even TGP nominal. <laughs> so we look forward to seeing you again or hearing you again, as the case may be, in June. Yeah, all about Saturn. So clear skies to everyone. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. Dot .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So I think it's that time again, John, to start wrapping things up. Wrapping things up like Christmas presents. That was a really uh, bad analogy. Oh well. <laughs> now, as always, John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, but it's been awesome that you were able to get out there and get some of these interviews at PAX. I'm still not all that great at it, but sometimes when the when all the bits fall into place, it's pretty fun. It is. You know, especially talking with Will Traxler and uh, talking with the guys for Labradex Studios. That was fun. As always, it's always great to, to have Ross on the show. And it's always great to have you listeners listening in like you do. And may you do so for a long while because it keeps us going. Well, there's only one thing left to say, and that is take care of one and all. And we will speak to you again real soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because... Your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.